Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. I'm watching a little bit of the basketball, but mostly I'm following these impeachment hearings. Uh, uh, that's why they've been pretty entertaining. Uh, one thing I was surprised about is to hear that uh, the women that were the most uh, uh, saying the most egregious things, like shoot Pelosi in the head, were women. You know, it seems surprising to me that it would be women saying that about a female politician. Now to new developments in the Capitol chaos. Right now, the St. Louis area woman seen holding the House Speaker's sign is back out on the streets tonight. Emily Hernandez from Sullivan faces five federal charges for her part in the Capitol Hill riots two weeks ago. In court documents, prosecutors showed photos and screenshots of video taken of Hernandez inside the Capitol and outside on the steps. In the photos, she's holding a sign that has Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's name on it. Her attorney told me that she understands there are consequences for her actions and wants to put this behind her as soon as she can. She's a the girl next door. All new this midday, a Gloucester woman is facing several charges after prosecutors say she illegally entered the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th insurrection. FBI agents arrested Melody Steele Smith on January 20th. Agents charged her with knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building on grounds with lawful authority, violent entry, and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. The FBI says law enforcement received an online tip from a relative about Steele Smith on January 8th. Officials say she shared photos from inside House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office on her Facebook page. Other photos showed rioters inside the Capitol with the caption, We stormed the castle. Federal prosecutors have charged two women from Bucks County in connection with the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Don Bancroft, pictured right there, has been charged along with Diane Santos-Smith for violent entry on Capitol grounds and also disorderly conduct in a restricted building. Federal investigators say that you can also hear the women on a video discussing their desire for violence against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Connie Roman noticed her neighbor Valerie Elaine Erke posting videos from the U.S. Capitol on January 6th to social media. I saw some videos. I know she's a Trump supporter. I thought it was just a trip. Turned out to be so much more. According to an affidavit released by the FBI, the agency arrested Erke after they were tipped off to videos on her Facebook, one of them showing a mob of people inside the U.S. Capitol with the caption, we made it inside right before they shoved us all out. I took off when I felt pepper spray in my throat. The affidavit says Erke wanted to be a part of the crowd. Can you tell us why you went down to D.C.? From the nation's capital to federal court in Boston, 
Suzanne Ayani not talking about her January 6th trip to Washington, D.C., even though she posted plenty of pictures about it on social media. There's a lot to say on social media. Why are you not talking now? Ayani arrested Tuesday morning in Natick, the town meeting member charged with entering the Capitol during the attack. Federal prosecutors pointing to this picture that appears to show her inside. Investigators say a 23-year-old West Virginia woman bragged about being a part of the group storming the United States Capitol to someone she knows, and that person then showed the messages to the FBI. Grayson Don Courtright is accused of taking a members-only sign near the Senate chambers. Her charges include theft of government property, violent entry, and disorderly conduct. Someone who knows Courtright thought she saw her in a video of the U.S. Capitol riots. She messaged her on Instagram. Courtright then admitted she went in and the person said they were embarrassed, at which point the FBI says Courtright said, quote, I'm not embarrassed, so you shouldn't be, bragging the event was making history and she thought it was cool. The report provides evidence that shows both Felicia and Corey Connell participated in helping crowds pass police barriers and obstruct law enforcement from securing the Capitol from the protesters. A witness provided information for Felicia Connell's Snapchat account, where the report says she talks about being recruited into a Kansas City chapter of the Proud Boys despite being from Tucson. The report also says Connell posted a video saying, I never could have imagined having that much of an influence on the events that unfolded today. And we did it. A Burlington County woman appeared in court by Zoom today to face charges in the Capitol riot. Stephanie Hazelton of Medford was arrested this morning. Authorities say she was caught on video encouraging rioters to storm the Capitol. She is expected to be released on bail soon. Well, those three Beverly Hills residents will be in a federal court this afternoon. We don't know the exact charges they are facing, but we are told they were filed in Washington, D.C. Now take a look at this video from earlier this morning. You can see the number of FBI agents who, along with Beverly Hills Police came to this apartment building on Palm Drive and arrested 52-year-old Gina Bisignano. She is a salon owner who admitted to the local newspaper here that she was at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And there are videos posted on social media that show her in one of the windows of the building and then talking about getting sprayed in the face. A local woman charged in connection with the Capitol riot will be allowed to go home while awaiting trial. A federal judge rejected prosecutors' attempt to keep Rachel Powell locked up. Jessica Gway is live at the Butler County Jail with more. Jessica. Yes, Ken. Uh, Capital assault suspect Rachel Powell will no longer be here at the Butler County Prison. A second federal judge ruled that the mother of eight from Mercer County may be released and await trial at home, but with restrictions. We've been here for several hours and have not seen her leave yet. She's been called the bullhorn lady and the pink hat lady for her alleged actions during the U.S. Capitol attack on January 6th. Rachel Powell of Mercer County has been in government custody since last week, facing several charges. And now a second federal judge in Washington, D.C. ordered she can await trial at home. The mother of eight allegedly used a bullhorn to give details about the Capitol layout and used a large pipe to break into the Capitol. Judge Beryl Powell appeared torn and said the evidence against Powell weighed heavily in favor for pretrial detention. Federal prosecutors said Powell should remain behind bars before trial, writing Wednesday and appealing her release that Powell is a leading participant. They also introduced a picture of ammo for her registered Glock and AK-47. 
Powell's defense attorney said she was not armed and did not physically harm anyone on January 6th and had no advanced knowledge of the Capitol. There may be some additional steps that need to be taken since Powell will be on home detention and electronic electronic monitoring. So it is unclear right now if that process has been completed. Once again, we've been here since that, this afternoon and have not seen her leave the building. We did reach out to her attorney to find out more information, but have not heard back. Live in Butler, Jessica Gway, KDK News. She's uh, the girl next door. The cows, context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. So I have been told uh, before we get started, March 3, I was looking at the L.A. Times today. It is 30 years to the day of the beating of Rodney King passed away in 2012 but they were talking about that in the LA Times we just spent all that time talking about Rodney King during the OJ Simpson trial anyway also we can stamp for the program our timing has been not so bad over the years uh, 12 years context of white supremacy what a way to start off women's history month Uh, what a way my goodness I'm so excited Uh, the broadcast for the day Uh, in fact you should keep in mind this broadcast I mean we got a rack of them over our 12 year history of broadcasting this is one subject matter we have not failed on we have uh, I think been pretty consistent and thorough in pointing out you cannot have a system of white supremacy racism worldwide without white women that is a major problem in the way that we articulate and theorize about this problem. I submit a major component of why we have not solved this problem when you are minimizing the role of 50% of the participants. And they say it's more females on the planet than males. So, I mean, it could be even more, but be that as it may, today's broadcast, you should probably put that with, you could uh, maybe group it with some of our other broadcasts who are actually referenced in the book we'll be discussing today. Uh, Jane Daly, not her new book, her latest book, White Fright, The Sexual Panic at the Heart of America's Racist History. She was just with us a few weeks back. Melissa in Stein, Measuring Manhood, Race and the Science of Masculinity, 1830 to 1934. Glenda Gilmore, who is referenced in the book, Women and the Politics, Gender and Jim Crow, Women and the Politics of White Supremacy in North Carolina, 1896 to 1920. And Kelly J. Baker, who was just with us uh, two weeks ago, uh, discussing the role of white women at the Capitol siege and in the system of white supremacy in general, all white female guests, even more that I could mention. But that's a good starter uh, for what we'll be talking about today. Uh, There was a report in the Washington Post uh, by our guest uh, that is very similar to her book uh, that even gives some info related to that long montage we heard at the beginning of all white women who participated in the siege. 
even there with recent events, current events, it's white men, white men, white men. There were a lot of white women participating in that treasonous pillage. But the report at the Washington Post, Marjorie Taylor Greene is just the latest radical white woman poisoning politics. That's one written by our guest today. And then there was a different report. I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, titled Can't Wait to Tell My Grandkids I Was Here. The Women Arrested It for Storming the Capitol by Koa Bragg, black female uh, journalist. Just a little snippet. She writes more Trump supporters are men, but exit polls show that he won the majority of white women's votes in both 2016 and 2020. Similarly, men made up the majority of those who stormed the Capitol. However, the women there played key roles. Some women who have been charged told law enforcement they were there at the behest of the president. Others claimed they got caught up in the events of the day. Of the 28 who have been arrested, 21 have been released while they wait for their cases to proceed and five await trial behind bars. The fate of two women has yet to be determined. At least four women spoke directly to the media to confirm their participation in the insurrection, some boasting of their patriotism. We'll hear that reflected again today, that theme of patriotism. Women are some of the most influential and effective organizers in conspiracy theories like QAnon, which thrives on women-dominated social media apps like Instagram. But QAnon, which views Trump as the protector against a global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles, has jumped from online spaces to places like the Capitol. Ashley Babbitt who was fatally shot inside the Capitol as she tried to jump through a shattered doorway leading to the House chamber was purportedly a follower of QAnon, as was 34-year-old Roseanne Boyland, a Georgia woman who was trampled to death during the riot. Court documents show that some of the women arrested in the Capitol riots also followed far-right conspiracy theories. Not just white men, white women, the role of white women. Now we can get all that and then transition the book we are discussing today. I think uh, we had uh, a few listeners, investors uh, who recognized this book, got a lot of attention uh, of late uh, but said, hey, we should maybe discuss this. We've talked a lot about the role of white women in the system of white supremacy. The text, Mothers of Massive Resistance, White Women, and the Politics of White Supremacy. It certainly could have an addendum to discuss everything that happened January 6th and subsequently Marjorie Taylor Greene and all the rest. But whew, we'll have her. We can go through her text which reviews kind of post-Civil War and the whole resistance to school integration, as they call it. We'll see how that relates to things that are happening right now. 2021 Women's History Month, 2021. Oh, so appropriate. So excited to have her on the broadcast uh, joining us live. Let's see if we can track down the exact line. Hmm little confused. I got confused trying to pick out the line. Let me double check here. Let's see. I thought I had the recognized where I was dialing and then got confused. Let's see. Let's see. Maybe you can press star six one. That way I can 
figure it out. Let's see. Star six one. I'm not picking out which line. Star six one. You could do that, and then I could pick out which line our guest is on. My apologies. I'm not. Uh, hmm. For our guest, uh, Dr. McCray, if you could press star six one, I could pick out which line is yours. I'm not not seeing it. Not seeing it. I'm looking at the number now and it still doesn't uh, match up. Yes, if you're with us, you could press star six one. If not, I'll take up. Oh, all right. Gotcha. Gotcha. All righty. Much obliged, listeners, for your patience. Just took me a moment to track down the correct line. So in addition uh, to being the author uh, of the text Mothers of Massive Resistance uh, which won the Southern Historical Society's 2019 Frank L. and Harriet C. Owsley Award uh, as I just said, she is a professor of history at Western Carolina University. Got her on the line. So happy to have her with us. Our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Gillespie McCray. Dr. McCray, we have you now. Yes, sorry. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. No um, worries. Figured it out finally. Uh, thank you uh, for sharing a bit <laughs> of your time. Uh, as I said, now that we have you on the program, we can be appropriate. So uh, timing couldn't be better for Women's History Month. Uh, if you would like to, I'm sure we have some listeners who have not yet read Mothers of Massive Resistance. Uh, just anything that you would like to share about the work that you do before we get started? Um, just the book came out of um, sort of a pretty simple question about um, why and how racial segregation and investment in white supremacist politics, how it was reproduced and sustained decade after decade. And when I went looking for the answer to that question, I kept um, meeting white women in various roles, working in various um, places in society. Um, and so they became the subject of my um, book, Mothers of Massive Resistance, um, as these sort of central actors in shaping and sustaining and reproducing white supremacist politics. Spectacular. We'll try to cover as much ground as we can in your text. And as I said, relating that to the Capitol siege, women's role there, how this very much relates to current events. Uh, for listeners who have not seen you, Dr. McCray, you are a white woman yourself. Is that true? That is true. Awesome. Uh, for this broadcast, uh, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy. I use them as synonyms and I use the same definition for both. Uh, that definition a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? So I think there are multiple systems that exist and have changed over time that um, create 
this sort of political project of white of white supremacy and I, um, and I think it probably looks different. I mean, there are some commonalities, but I think it looks different in different places um, and it looks different in different eras. The way that the system is constructed, the people who produce um, white supremacist politics and um, the racism that goes with that. Um, So yes, and no. yes, I think it is a system, maybe. Hmm. Okay, well, so the question wasn't, is it a system? <laughs> I'll go back. And this is important uh, because many right. times I've concluded when talking with white people, sometimes they're not honest when talking with non-white people, black people about racism. So very important <laughs> that we get honest answers. And if you don't right. agree, that's totally fine too. You can just say, nope, I don't agree with that. Or I don't think your definition is accurate. And you know, this is why. And then if you yeah. have a definition, mm -hmm. that would be great too. So let's, we'll try one more time. My definition, because okay. I agree, the system does change. We've had people on the program from Japan, Brazil. It does look a little bit different mm -hmm. depending on where you happen to be geographically. Even temporally, it looks a little bit different, 1850 as opposed to 1950. But the conclusion is the same. White dominate non-white. So I'll give my definition again. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Yes. yes. I think such a system exists. I think that is an accurate definition. I think um, sometimes the people producing those politics are also interested in subjugating um, according to socioeconomic class as well as race. But I think racism works in that subjugation, right? In the subjugation of, um, of people across the globe. Um, yes. Yes, I think you have a good working definition if that matters what I think I mean right um, well, does that make sense we were very interested in what you think so you know certainly uh, as a white woman author <laughs> of this book what you think matters um, much more so than myself as a black male um, I, I do want to yeah. be very clear uh, conflation I've concluded that's one of the ways that white people often deliberately practice racism where they will do things to throw right. in poor white people in Appalachia and all the rest of it. There's lots of data. There's no comparison. And I want to be very clear with our listeners. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there's no evidence to that at all. White people mistreat other white people, but the system of white supremacy, the goal is mistreat everyone classified as not white. And if you are classified as white, you are supposed to be boss over them free to mistreat them do what you want sure. but the individuals classified as white collectively all over the known universe we are supposed to right. dominate non-white people 
Whew, I cannot wait till we get to the For details. Sure. Right. Woo. Uh, yeah. One more. And quick. I guess what I, just to clarify what I was saying, I think if um, I'm thinking of Ibram X. Kendi's work when he talks about producers and consumers of white supremacist politics and of racism. And um, I guess that was the distinction I was trying to make. Not that it is this, not that the oppression um, right of other people is the same is that they are producers of this white supremacist politics and they are consumers of it um, and, and that they are all involved in this project um, and system that you describe victim of racism there uh, let's see uh we have had a number of white guests on the program over the years, and I always uh, look forward to asking them this question. Uh, a different victim of racism uh, authored a report uh, talking about this problem, and he said, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. And I've been asking our white guests uh, just you are a white woman, the white people that you've been around, friends, family, your work, you research and study white supremacy, write about it. Uh, just according to what you have observed, studied, do you think that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism? Do you think that's true? That would not be true of the people that I study, <laughs> right? That would not be. And I think that currently um, we see a large number of people who that is not true of. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I've studied and um, have spent a long time studying white women who produced and disseminated and shaped and sustained white supremacist politics in institutions, at playgrounds, through bureaucracy, through violence, they are not they were not pained by racism. By what they saw <laughs> and, and or by what they created. Important, uh, I've said for a long time, frequently, and this was published in a mainstream uh publication that uh we don't get honest reporting about racism, white supremacy, what it means to be white. Honesty would help take us a long way in solving this problem. Uh, much obliged, Dr. McCray. Sure. Uh, let's see, getting, uh, pivoting specifically to your book. And I mean, wow, you just <laughs> you studied a lot of white women who did not seem pained about terrorizing <laughs> Ruby Bridges or Elizabeth Eckford or <laughs> a lot of the other things that they did to terrorize and keep black people from getting an education or just living a life without terrorism. They did not seem upset about this. Uh, let's try to get to some of the deep. And in fact, before we even get to some of the details for uh, mothers of massive resistance, uh, where it, can I ask where, where were you born? Yes, I was born in um, Lexington, Virginia. Um, and I grew up in, on the edge of the coal fields in Southwestern Virginia. So I think you're from, are you from Prince George County? Or did you grow up near? 
You're I, I'm, right? a, I'm a UVA alumnus. Like I, I spent a good bit of time in the Commonwealth. Like yikes, uh, woof. That's <laughs> thanks, yikes, amazing. Uh, well, my goodness. So a white woman from the Commonwealth, uh, coon man, governor, and all. Um, did you hear any racist strokes growing up in Virginia? Oh yeah. I would think so. I did too. Can, this is one we've asked a number of our yeah. white guests. And I mean, talk about strain for honesty. Cause we've had white guests who were born in Georgia and Louisiana and Arkansas. And it's always, Oh my goodness. We heard thousands of them, Gus, all kinds of racist shit. Cause, and I reason I'll even preface. The reason I ask is because white people are frequently dishonest when they speak to black people about racism. I've concluded one of the few times white people are ruthlessly honest when speaking about racism, racist jokes. I wholeheartedly encourage non-white people interrogate, deconstruct racist jokes. You will learn a lot about what it means to be white and racism. But if you can remember like one of the racist jokes that you heard growing up in the Commonwealth. Oh, I'm pretty terrible at jokes. I mean, what I think, um, I mean, I can think of the racist things that I heard and was surrounded um, by comments about union, um, like coal miners and unions and um, strike breakers, and many of those were racialized. Um, I think hearing um, black children being called sort of racist names, um, which is not a joke, but was said, right, and jokingly, like, Terms. Racist um, names like what? I mean, I think. Oh, like. Um, Picking any? You know, which is like used by the women that I write about to talk about young um, black girls right, often in subservient positions, right, as either um, agricultural workers or as um, domestic um, servants. Um, that word was used, right, in the creation of the um, Natchez, Mississippi, and the sort of, and I think um, that word, you know, had um, lasted for generations. I, I don't know that it's, you know, I guess I have removed myself from those kind of conversations, right, and that kind of conversation today. But I think I grew up in a, um, right, on the edge of the coal fields, and, and there were African-American coal miners, right, in Appalachia, which is, um, and that sort of long history of anti-union and unionization and, and the tensions that went with that. So... Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, that that has been a pattern uh, in terms of white guests, even. And I mean, literally, I'm not 
no hyperbole. We've had white guests who said, oh yeah, Gus, I heard like a thousand, maybe thousands of racist jokes uh, growing up, which no surprise, mm-hmm. system of white supremacy. Duh. Uh, and almost to a woman, to a man, they said, I do not remember even, you know, after hearing hundreds or thousands of them, which I think is interesting because I have not heard hundreds or thousands, but I remember <laughs> some many actually of the racist jokes that uh, I've heard, but be that as it may. Mothers of Massive Resistance. The detail in the book. You cannot have a system of white supremacy without white women. I guess I'll ask before I start moving to specific chapters. You spent some time talking about our home state, Virginia. Uh, But why? What what motivated you to focus uh, exclusively uh, on the role of white women in this project? Well, I think to... um sort of reiterate, I mean, my my sort of intellectual curiosity um, emerged from sort of why um, something that seems to me should be part of um, why racial equality um, had been, um, why racial equality had been stymied in the United States for so long. Like, why, what made that happen? And when I looked for the answer, and I guess um, maybe the answer, um, part of your question, I guess I, um, from growing up as a white Southern woman, right, um, and going to school and being interested in the civil rights movement, I read about five or six white women that had been allies of um, the civil rights movement, Constance Curry, um, Anne Braden, women like that. And they seemed pretty wholly foreign to me, right? Like I had not grown up in a world that I saw white women who had supported racial equality or the civil rights movement or talked about ancestors that had done that. And so I wondered um, if the real story of um, resistance of the civil rights movement and of white women's role in it, or one of the real stories, was not white women's opposition rather than white women's support for. And so that was sort of another, like, nagging question that I had, that after growing up as a, a white Southern woman and going to school, um, in the high school and then college um, in the South and working in D.C. that um, I felt like I hadn't sort of witnessed that history um, in a way. And so um, when I went to search for the questions, what I found, right, were white women as teachers, white women as textbook censors, white women in public welfare offices, white women... Um, who were registrars at courthouses, recording marriages and recording births, Um, white women who were telling stories um, in the newspapers about contented Southern black men and women eating watermelon and being happy in their sharecroppers' cabins um, and sort of promoting the story of... um, black satisfaction with segregation 
Um, like every, I kept every time I sort of chased a story down or looked at an institution, I found white women doing this really critical work, sustaining white supremacy, and it didn't get much coverage. I think unlike the Capitol on January 6th, the um, insurrection at the Capitol, right, that um, much of this was um, a kind of um, bureaucratic or documentary genocide um, or violence, and so it, but it didn't get the attention that um, the more violent aspects and moments of um, white resistance to the civil rights movement got, and so, um, but I think it's critically important, and I think the violence doesn't work if you don't have this other work being done in the system, and that work um, in the research I did was largely done by white women. That does not, well, at least to the last portion of your comment, uh, Dr. McCray, that does not surprise me. I know that we've had a number of white guests on before, and they've talked about even the racism, white supremacy in doing research. What do you get access to if you have to do interviews? Is a white person who practiced racism, are they going to be more comfortable talking to me or Dr. McCray? Like lots of, as I said, what do you they're get going to be more comfortable talking to me, right? <laughs> I mean, they're going to tell me things that they would not tell you. And Those I'm going to have jokes. access in some oral interviews. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those racist jokes people i bet their memory becomes stolid oh yes and look at this and picking any of that and all the in fact speaking of racist jokes in your thorough answer you said you found lots of instances of white women stymieing efforts for so-called racial equality and all the rest even in the language stymie has been used as a racist slur racist joke like uh that has been a racist slur to just stymie as a nickname for black people uh and even having characters black characters named stymie uh in films and you know all the rest of it um and she mentioned uh ann braden uh we had katherine fossil uh on the program to talk about her biography on ann braden and her yeah, you have to go back in the archives to listen to that. Uh, another different white woman, two different white women, actually. Not statistically significant. That's the main takeaway. White people who allege to not be racist do not nearly compare to the avalanche, the mountains of white women who stymied the efforts for equality, justice. Uh, getting to the details, I'll read a little bit from Massive Resist. Like, whew, the details. Women did more than work for the state. This is from uh, Chapter 1, The Color Line in Virginia, Coon Man. Women did more than work for the state in the quest for racial purity. White women constituted both the subjects of racial integrity and its labor force. Women's bodies were the landscape on which the policing of racial intermixing often took place. If protected from from interracial liaison, contemporary race scientists argued white women would purify and invigorate the nation. If white women sought out sexual liaisons with 
non-white men, however, they could also serve as potential transgressors, ruining racial purity and by consequence, innervating the nation beyond their reproductive capacity to strengthen or weaken the nation eugenicists argued that women carried in their very genetic makeup the power to recognize race mixing they were vital to the enforcement of racial purity the fact that women often had the most access to and knowledge of the places where this racial classification would occur the bedroom the birthing room and the classroom enhanced their alleged genetic proclivity for detecting mixed race individuals the midwife had to certify race on birth certificates Jim Crow state policy instructed the white school teacher to report to the school superintendent's office children she suspected of mixed race heritage. The social worker recorded the racial identities of the families with whom she worked, deciding race based on a host of behavioral and hereditary observations often mixed with a dose of local gossip. The local registrar had to turn in marriage licenses to each state's Bureau of Vital Statistics. The Racial Integrity Act and accompanying eugenic legislation nationwide created public policies that required enforcement by those with familiar female I'll stop there before we get into why that is such critical that was the word that was used critical she said it twice in her earlier response I agree critical maybe that's the word for the program before we get into why this is such critical work of white supremacy and tied to the bedroom no less the use of the term non-white Jane Elliott scolded me mightily. She refused to answer questions when I used the term non-white. She said, use the term uh, person of color. We had a white female guest. In fact, I've had multiple white female guests scold me for using the term non-white. Do you think there's any problem with using the term non-white to articulate what happens in a system of white supremacy? So I think there's the referential problem of defining defining people, right, in opposition or to a group that's trying to achieve dominance. But clearly, I use the word non-white, <laughs> um, and I think that um, it's a critical demarc it's a critical line of demarcation in white supremacist politics, right? And in the case of Virginia, it was not um in drawing the lines of Jim Crow, it was white and and everyone else who wasn't white, whether that be um fr- from the Philippines, Native American, ch- 
black, the whole, like their lines were white and non-white. And that's what the, that's what um, the racist legislation in 1924 did in Virginia, right? It tried to define whiteness by um, shoring up that definition and making everyone that didn't meet that definition non-white. So, um, and I guess in 1920s, they, the white supremacists wouldn't have used the word people of color. <laughs> right? I mean, that was not the term, that was not how they um, saw the world, but they were interested in erasing every, in, in drawing the line between white and everyone that they deemed was not white. So I don't know why you would, why do you use the word non-white when you talk? <laughs> clear demarcation uh, exactly what you stated right. uh, in terms of these other people who are classified as white we are supposed to be boss in charge we can fight amongst each other mistreat each other and all of that in fact we right. do a lot of that but at the end of the day all of us are right. supposed to dominate and abuse all of them who is them everybody that we say is not white and especially the black people but everybody that we say is right. not white kung flu to nigra piccaninny and all <sighs> mistreat whatever blah 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 uh now back to that critical passage wow the role of white i mean critical work of white women you are supposed to be able to make these distinctions about who is classified as white not and I mean even down to teachers you are supposed to report if this person you think this person has mixed race ancestry you are mandated to I mean I had not heard any of this this is like serious as you said this is like state sanctioned work that white women and they're expected to be the experts uh, at this can you emphasize why this is so important Well, I think um, it's important for a lot of reasons, right? If we think about, um, if you fast forward to the um, white supremacist arguments after the Brown decision, right? They come back to the bedroom and the classroom, right? And that the classroom is going to be a place that promotes um, romance across the color line and, um, and that the fear, and I think this is that the fear um, is not um, sexual violence, it's marriage, right? The fear of in this 1924 Racial Integrity Act and later what we see in massive resistance, and I think it's a through line even through um, the busing, um, anti-busing crusades of the 70s, is that if you look at what white women are saying, um, Right, which is sometimes different than what white men are saying. Uh, right, so white men will, and some white women for sure, will promote this idea, right, of of rape, right, of um, black men raping white women as this danger and and as a justification for um, white supremacy. But white women almost exclusively, I would say, ninety nine percent of the white of the letters and things I read from white women their fear was marriage across the color line of the white supremacists. And so um, 
I think we see that from the 20s all the way through the 50s. I think another sort of critical part of that chapter is that, and I think we do this even today, that we focus on the loudest voices and we focus on legislation, but legislation can't work um, unless people on the ground in local communities enforce it. And so the Virginia legislature could have passed and did, right, the Racial Integrity Act, which was to define Virginians as either white or non-white. Um, and it could have sat there, but you had this group, right, of you had these legions of white women that took that law and enacted it in their classrooms and in local courthouses and um, in writing and certifying marriage licenses and um, and in telling um, and categorizing the racial identity of babies. And that went long after. I mean, there's stories from the 1980s of um, women having children in Lynchburg and places in this sort of um, place in this um, region of Virginia, right? And the hospital workers um, would categorize their babies race without asking them. And it was because of this sort of long education that had started in the 20s and this, um, right, what your name was and where you lived and um, that became sort of the determination. Uh, again, when I point out uh, white people cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy, like what she just shared and racial classifications, that is a crucial component of the system of white supremacy. I mean, we uh, white by law. Uh, that was one of the first uh, books that we had uh, on the program uh, and talking about people going all the way to the Supreme Court uh, to challenge. Yes, I'm classified as white. No, you're not. Sorry. You can stay on the non-white team and, you know, you already know what that means. Um, but that is so important. You are expected to know this as a white person and white women. You are expected to have special expertise about racial classifications and a duty to snitch if you think right. and I mean snitching on children like wait a minute I think mm -hmm. eh, mm -hmm. a touch of the tar but yeah I'm gonna have to like whoa and having legions of white women yep sign up I will do it absolutely <laughs> like snitch and again the other component you can't be ignorant if you are a white person you can't be ignorant about racism because, and this comes up over and over and over in massive resistance. Oh my, you will get in trouble with other white people. I could read a bunch of them. I could get an answer now, but that's such a huge theme of the book. Like if you are a white person and you are not abiding by the rules of white supremacy, racism, your white neighbors, your white family members, your white co-workers, they will let you know. Is that correct, Dr. McRae? Yes. I mean, you saw that in, um, I mean, in two of the most what, illustrative cases in the Boston anti-busing, 
um, Crusades, and in New Orleans um, at William France Elementary when Ruby Bridges integrated that if you didn't adhere um, as a white working class woman to the line that was being drawn, then your neighbors turned on you too, right? You you're a, a race traitor in um, in that sense, and so um, yeah, not possible to be. I mean, the consequences aren't as startling, right? I mean, the consequences aren't equal to like what Ruby Bridges went through by any means, right? But I think um, white supremacy requires an allegiance. And you need, and um, that allegiance requires training and loyalty, and also requires purging the people that aren't, that don't follow. Indeed, indeed, cannot be white people cannot be ignorant about racism. As I read your book, I saw guests we've had before, Glenda Gilmore and the like, and then I saw other elements that just reminded me of guests, things we've talked about before. Uh, James Lowen, Sundown Towns. Uh, this section reminded me of that book. This is also from uh, Chapter One, The Color Line in Virginia. Uh, you write in 1926, uh, Arthur Estabrook and Ivan McDougall published this research in Mongrel Virginians. The book's subjects resided in the fictional Coon Mountain and Buck Hollow. In Ab County, Virginia, located near Lynchburg, next to an Episcopal mission, the racial classifications reflected typologies used nationwide and were as plentiful as they were unscientific. They included Indian Negro, predominantly Negro, colored, typical Indian, Negro white mixture, copper colored practically white now we <laughs> grab the fella that you take hey grab that practically white fella right there i want to bring him in for questioning good luck with that one let's see uh what what is the other we got the same appearance as a person tanned by the sun that is another glorious one go out and find me that fella or gal Skin light but spotted like a mulatto. Whiter and white. Comments on complexion slid into assessments of behaviors. For example, Bessie Jones with black hair, dark brown eyes, but light skin of very poor mentality is unindustrious, shiftless, stymied. I thought she was going to slip it out. I'll stop there, but that if if you want to go back to your question why do you use the term non-white now i could pick up all of these right we could have white practically white colored negro uh we could do all that copper and just keep on cranking them out or we could try to simplify this what are we white not got it got it (laughs) any extra coon mountain and all the rest the importance of of all these uh Odd racial classifications. What what's your like? What is the importance of these racial classifications? Is just the your... 
the significance of kind of the, the mocking titles of some or just the reinforcing of what this is all about with these. This all coming from this book, The uh, Mongrel Virginians, uh, which is just kind of reinforcing, making sure that we know what's important. Right, right. And um, also past the sort of science of the day, right? I mean, those were sociologists that were training college students to go out and make these observations. And um, and I think, well, I think the classification speaks to um, a deep and historic obsession about um, race and interracial relationships that push way back, right, into the Middle Passage and the slave trade. I think there's a book by Martha Hodes um, that um, points out the, like, ability of white people um, in white majority areas to sort of categorize people in this um, not sophisticated, but a very lengthy typology, right, that speaks to the sort of obsession and also acknowledgement, right, of um, a long history of sexual violence um, of white men um, towards black women and enslavement and after. We uh, some of the guests that I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the broadcast, uh, Melissa in Stein, even Jane Daly, uh, her book, her most recent book, White Fright, the Sexual Panic at the Heart of America's Racist History. Her book does focus quite a bit on uh, white males, sexual abuse of black females and children uh, and the fear around black males uh, raping or doing something sexually violent with white women, uh, but she does not focus on white women uh, as perpetrators of sexual violence uh, and/or black males, uh, black males and/or black boys uh, as victims of sexual violence from white women and/or white men. Uh, and we've talked repeatedly about how this is something that is left out, even all the way back to the plantation. Uh, that this is something that is generally much like your work talk about white women's role in racism white supremacy black males as victims of sexual violence and white women's role as sexual perpetrators of sexual violence uh, i guess can can you speak to that white women's role as sexual perpetrators well i think um I think there's two books, and, and particularly um, one recent book that does an excellent job with this. They Were Her Property, too, Stephanie um, Jones-Rogers, who um, writes about white um, women slave owners um, and the range of abuse that they enact on the enslaved um, people that they own, including sexual abuse um, uh, and sexual assault, and um, and I think her book um, does 
an extraordinary job of that. And then At the Dark End of the Street by Danielle McGuire that talks about um, white women who would um, accuse um, black men in the Jim Crow South of rape when they got caught in what was um, for the white woman, right, a consensual relationship, but that black men had very little consent in that relationship, right? Denying a white woman, um, they knew they could be accused of rape. Um, acquiescing to a white woman's advances also brought danger with it. And so I think there are stories of um, white women wielding their power um, in that way from the period of in, um, slavery all the way through the 20th century. Uh, context. Carolyn Bryant and Emmett Till. Mm. You mentioned Emmett Till's murder in the book, but you don't really focus on uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham as an example uh, of that in terms because we talked about that with some of our other guests and not only uh, accusations right. of her perhaps being present uh, the night of his murder to actually identify and pick out, you know, which Piccaninny or a black potential rapist uh, said this and needed to be punished, uh, but she may have been there for the murder and her culpability in lying about all this, the accusation that it shouldn't just be thought of as uh, Bryant and his partner, these two white guys, it shouldn't just be thought of as them, that she is also an accomplice in this murder, but you don't really focus on her role in your kind of brief mention of Emmett Till in your book. Uh, why is that? Right. Um, well, I think there were other people writing um, probably more extensive books on Emmett Till at that time. Um, and I was interested um, yeah, I, I mean um, I was interested too in how um, people had focused on Emmett Till and the alleged wolf whistle and not um, in thinking about um, white women's sort of obsession with romance uh, across the color line, that the story of Emmett Till um, flashing a picture of what some folks later said, right, was his white girlfriend from Chicago, um, spoke to the fears of um, integrated um, schools. So I think, yeah, I probably missed um, well, missed delving into Carolyn Bryant um, because I was focusing on um, the different part of the Emmett Till story of the sort of picture he supposedly had in his wallet that people kept talking about. Hmm. I don't think there's too much uh, literature on uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham as racist and I mean she's an accomplice in a murder that's the way that we should think about her like there's no statute of and yet yeah. there's no statute of limitations on murder she's alive she should be prosecuted like that's the way that it would be thought of if we were correct thinking people uh, and I don't see that happen and, or I'll ask it this way do you think that would be justice to see her prosecuted yes yeah, so well I would um Two years ago, I participated in a March on Washington Film Festival and was on a panel that called, that was Sheila, 
Um, and it was about, um, and an FBI, a former um, FBI agent spoke about the attempts to bring um, to bring her um, because there is no statute of limitations, and with the new evidence, and I guess, and not I guess, and her admission of lying um, about um, the murder, that they there are ongoing attempts, right, to bring her to justice. And, and that panel that um, I was part of was about the sort of um, that why and its um, consequences and 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 her fate. Apparently the only uh, white person involved in those crimes, or I'll say one of the only white people involved in those crimes to never even have to go to court as a defendant, the white woman, the power of white women in the system of white supremacy. I never even have to stay in trial. Like, get out of here. Uh, I, incidentally, right. before I move to the next. And that group, white women denied that it was Emmett Till, right? That many white women um, perpetuated the conspiracy theory that um, the body was not Emmett Till and it was an NAACP conspiracy that was promoted by. Um, by white women. Mm, important. Uh, incidentally, uh, Danielle McGuire, she was a guest on the program 2011. We discussed at the dark end of the street, black women, rape and resistance, a new history of the civil rights movement from Rosa Parks to the rise of black power, important information, but that book doesn't really focus on white women as sexual perpetrators. Most of that no, is no. also no, no. white men. And that was my yeah, have to be on my P's and Q's here. Uh, on page, uh, hmm, <laughs> I, to, I wanted to move forward, but hmm, <laughs> I have to put a pin there. I have to put a pin there. I would say that because when I asked my, when I asked the question about, you know, do you have any thoughts on uh, white women's role as perpetrators of sexual violence? And you pointed to two books one written by a non-white person. And that's something that I point out regularly when white people reference other non-white people to talk about racism, because I've concluded unlike white people, you cannot be ignorant about racism. I've concluded that most non-white people are very confused about racism. So often that's reflected in what they write, but the other book is not even about what I asked about. So that's the type of thing I'm a little hmm, suspicious, but I'll, I'm sorry. Were you going to say something, Dr. McCray? What do you mean? Well, yeah, I was just at, like, what book is not what you ask about? The book by Daniel McGuire does not relate to the question I asked about white women as perpetrators. That book is focused on white men as perpetrators. And you said you knew that. Uh, and so I said, wow, to mention a book that's not related to the question, that's something I would generally be suspicious. Like, is she like deliberately not answered my question or trying to throw me off? Like if I didn't know about that book, I'd just be like, oh, maybe that's something I need to check out to find about white women being sexual perpetrators. But that's not what that book is about at all. It's the exact opposite. That's what I was talking oh, about. But there's the case of the lynching in um, Laurel, Mississippi, where the woman lied Um and took the stand and said it was raped and that she was raped and it was, uh, um, she had seduced, um, 
So that was the instance in the Danielle McGuire book that I was speaking about um, was that case. Okay. But what I said again, the, the main yeah, thrust the I mean, is overall is yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, that's like a sliver. Like that's, that's not, yeah. Like I said, moving forward uh, on page 63, uh, of the text and I have the digital version so the pages might not correspond in Mississippi this is chapter 2 though citizenship education for a segregationist society I'm missing the rest of the chapter page for a segregated natish nation uh, you write in Mississippi a primer entitled the KKK written by Laura Rose Rutherford's successor at the United Daughters of the Confederacy historian general made the state adoption list. In it, Rose argued that the first KKK arose as an antidote to the widespread belief among African Americans that freedom meant they no longer had to labor. Children reading the book would learn that the original KKK had been a necessary counterpart to the African American led Union Leagues, which Rose argued had endangered racial strife and oppressed Southern whites. In fact, the Union Leagues were political organizations of African Americans and white unionists in the post war South who advocated for the black franchise, voter registration, and support with the national government but students would not learn that from Rose's book instead they would read that the KKK countered the impulse among black men to take white wives cowbell the next the text reminded school children that the best citizens of our country joined the KKK they didn't say the the toothless unedged wait a minute now where they tell us all the time it's the toothless bedraggled uh down and out brokest of the broke white trash who are in the kkk not the quote best citizens of our country joined the kkk because they were motivated by love and protection of home violence was their last resort and rose also noted that crimes committed by mean white men were often falsely attributed to the KKK. She extolled the Klan for preserving the purity and domination, that word again, of the Anglo-Saxon race. So important in terms of what we learn in school. You see this now, even control of textbook, but you talk about how this was the world of white women. And I guess if you could make it current, continues to be, I think, People should keep this type of information in mind when we talk about the cliche school to prison pipeline for mostly black boys. White women continue to dominate that area of education. But if you could talk about the role of white women in, in controlling what qualifies as education, what we're going to learn about how they dominate that school environment and right up until today, 21st century. Yeah, so I think um I find it super important, and sometimes when I talk about it, I think people probably lose interest because it seems kind of wonky, but I think this is um, the textbook censorship and the way that American history is shaped by white supremacist women is really critical to the um, 20th and the 21st century. Um, 
so what white women did and white Southern women um, were at the forefront of this in the um, 1920s is as um, public education um, came uh, more and more under um, state government, there um, was the development of textbook selection committees. And, and that development of statewide textbook selection committees happened um, in the, in, in the Jim Crow South among white state governments before it happened other places. And so white women like Mildred Lewis Rutherford, like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, conducted a campaign knowing now that to control the history narrative, all they had to do was control the textbook selection committee. And it rippled out. So if they campaign the textbook selection committees, um, to shape and adopt certain historical narratives that um, upheld the first KKK, that erased Nathan Bedford Forrest um, Fort Pillow massacre when um, he led Confederate troops to shoot um, black Union troops who were surrendering in the back. That disappeared. Um, Harriet Tubman disappeared. Um, from um, textbooks, and that was the work. Um, the war between the states became the new name for the Civil War, and that was the work of white women controlling these textbook selection committees. And in a sort of capitalist calculus, um, textbook publishers realized that they made more money from states that offered state textwise statewide textbook selection. And so the books that they printed for the nation became the books that white Southern women had campaigned their textbook selection committees in each state to adopt. So kids in California and New York are reading an American history that was shaped by white supremacist women who were trying um, to uphold racial segregation through the history that their kids learned. This was being challenged the whole time, right, by a group called the International Council for Darker um, Women that was led by Booker T. Washington's um, wife and, and trying to sort of shape a different history, right, that um, Carter Woodson um, was pushing for um, a more accurate American history that incorporated um, African-American experiences at the core of American history, um, but they didn't control the state legislatures and they didn't control the textbook selection committees. And so white women shaped American history for the nation. Wow. Carter G. Woodson, we just finished Black History Month. Everyone complained about it. Uh, I, the, the other component of my question, uh, that control that you talked about is so important in terms of white women taking the reins uh, in terms of what is going to be considered history. Uh, we see those battles even today over textbooks and what words are going to be used, how are we going to describe the slaves and all the rest of it. Can you relate that to, as I said, current day when they talk about the uh, school to prison pipeline uh, and disproportionate disciplinary actions and all the like, 
that would still be the realm of white women. And I don't think that we often think about, wow, white women are at the head of the school to prison pipeline. Can you relate that to your work? Well, I think after the Brown decision, um, right, white segregationist women and white supremacist women in um, some of the reports that were written and distributed, right, opposing racial um, integration in the schools began, um, much like Emmett Till, um, was to criminalize um, young um, black men and boys, frankly, right, to um, to introduce, right, them as threats in an integrated school setting. And I think um, it's not hard to draw, um, I mean, I haven't done the research, but it's not hard to draw the lines between um, that kind of discussion in the aftermath of Brown of the Brown decision. And there were roots of that before, I think, if you look at Khalil Muhammad's um, work, but that after the Brown decision, um, white women um, position themselves in ways over the school debates that allow them to perpetuate really damaging stereotypes um, about um, black teenage boys and black um, black young black boys in ways that it's not hard um, to draw the lines between that and rising rates of incarceration and an escalation of juvenile delinquency, et cetera, right, of definitions of juvenile delinquency, of expulsion um, in schools, uh, of, of those kinds of institutions and practices. And, and I think we live with that today. I mean, if you look at the sort of how um, Michael Brown was described in the press after his murder in Ferguson. Mm. Definitions of juvenile delinquency. That was key. Highlight definitions are so important. How we even think of juvenile because sometimes juvenile delinquency can be up oh, your pants are sagging. See, we have that defined as, you know, uncooperative wardrobe and that like you think I'm joke, but Michael Brown Jr. Definitions of juvenile delinquency have real world consequences often for black people. Right, right. Uh, before I get right. some of the folks. I think the way Emmett Hill was described. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. I mean, the way Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy, was described, right? The echoes, the way Trayvon Martin, um, the picture, the sort of false picture of Trayvon Martin that was circulated, right? Um, I think we see this over and over. I mean, I think, that, you know, it's not hard to draw lines from the 1950s to the present in those kind of, of that kind of damaging um, popular rhetoric. Before uh, we nab some of our callers, if you have a question for Dr. Elizabeth Gillespie McRae, author of Mothers of Massive Resistance, The Role of White Women, uh, 
Oh, my goodness. Talk about the term non-white. And I think it's so important to keep in mind global system of racism. This uh, portion, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. This is to uh, chapter uh, six in the text, chapter chapter six, uh, Jim Crow's international enemies and nationwide allies. So important to think of racism, white supremacy as a global system, as I said in my definition and throughout the conversation this evening. Uh, you write, the daughters of the American Revolution's earlier concern that the U.N., possibly could interfere in domestic affairs had come to fruition. The DAR magazine ran articles warning its members that UN conventions could be invoked to overturn anti-miscegenation laws, cowbell, just as the human rights declaration had been used to overturn racially exclusive property legislation in the California in California across the nation DAR chapters spent much of the of 1951 studying the problems with the UN and the genocide convention the Illinois DAR sponsored a statewide essay contest on why the United States should not belong to a world government organization. Mississippi chapters crafted a year-long study on world government and the genocide convention. The DAR state regent for Texas reported that 65% of its local programs focused on the UN or world government. As more and more organizations adopted plans like these, like those of the DAR, support for the UN waned. After a year of study, the DAR passed formal resolutions against the United Nations, world government, and the Genocide Treaty, arguing that the United Nations was a threat to private property, Christianity, and minority rights. Highlight, highlight, highlight. In this case, the DAR noted that whites were a minority in the world's population. Ogden attacked the genocide treaty specifically because it defined genocide definitions defined genocide as a crime which does mental or bodily harm to a member of a racial minority. As Florence Ogden stated in the context of Mississippi, this meant using minority rights to mean black Southerners in this case, that it would be illegal to make a derogatory statements about the NAACP. She also argued that under the treaty, a Negro, a Chinese, or a member of any racial minority could insult you or your daughter. Your husband might shoot him. That seems like a commiserate response. Knock him down or cuss him out. If so, he could be tried in an international court. It would also make it a crime to prevent racial intermarriage and intermarriage would destroy the white race, which has brought Christianity to the world. Religion of white supremacy. I found this passage stunning for so many reasons. Uh, I mean, it is... It is extremely rare for me to see white people talking about themselves as a global minority and how they're thinking about racism, <laughs> white supremacy expressed like that explicitly. 
that was stunning. And then this notion that the UN could somehow destabilize white supremacy, racism as a national system here in the U.S. And that being enough of a concern that we do not want to belong to the UN. I mean, wow. Uh, just can, can you give more details about how, how, how strongly, how much of a significant threat many white people felt this was at the time and their sense of white people being a global minority? Well, I think that's, that, well, there's so, I was, I think the anti-UN piece I found, I guess I just didn't know (laughs) when that that would be a part of the white supremacist um, political project um, until I got into this research. And I'm sure, like, um, Carol Anderson and um, Brenda Plummer have written um, about this, but thinking about sort of domestic racism and white supremacy in America, I was sort of shocked by this um, long-standing attention to the United Nations. Um, the United States would not um, approve the Genocide Treaty until Ronald Reagan even when people like Richard Nixon right, um, requested um, Congress to take it up, the opposition to the Human Rights and Genocide um, Conventions of the United Nations um, could not gain sway even in the late 60s and early um, 1970s. And it was largely um, this work of um, anti-UN um, white women, they campaigned against trick-or-treating for UNICEF. They told people to hand out anti-communist literature um, to children trick-or-treating for UNICEF. They campaigned across the nation against multicultural education, um, arguing that the white mon- global minority right, would um, lose its primacy in history and that the American founding fathers would lose their sort of eminence in this multicultural um, UN-sponsored education. So I think we see, like, opposition to sort of changing school curriculums today rooted in some of this um, um, anti-UN campaign. Um, Southern newspapers covered not accurately, right, but covered, like, stories of um, post, of decolonization efforts uh, on the African continent in ways that I don't think you can find in state, in, you know, the Raleigh News and Observer or the Jackson Clarion Ledger in state papers today, that sort of detailed coverage of Africa, which I think speaks to their sort of investment in um global white supremacy. White women joined something called Friends of Rhodesia, right, which was to support white colonial efforts in Rhodesia. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's just my book is just one sliver of sort of this larger, and I think would tie um, to your definition of a global system. Staggering. I I almost when I read that I was stunned. I think it's important that white p 
people are global minority, uh, keeping that in mind in, in terms of Dr. Welsing's theory of white genetic annihilation and how much so much of this connects to the bedroom. Uh, but it's just mm-hmm. it's staggering to think uh, the U.N. like what what would they do exactly? Do they have a military <laughs> like what? uh yeah, I don't I don't know. They just seem to write reports. That's about it. Like they might write a report and say something bad about you, but I don't know. They have thus far proven themselves incapable of doing anything about racism. I think they did make some comments about Michael Brown Jr. in 2014 and we're still, you know, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, like I think they said something about that too. I think they did write some they wrote some reports, I think. More paper and, you know. Let's see. Folks who dialed in, the number is 7 I'm sorry. There was hope, like the NAACP tried to lobby the United Nations right after World War II to condemn the United States for racial segregation and racist violence. Um, right. Like you said, it didn't go anywhere. Um, and But I think like for white women, that was enough, right, to put the UN as this sort of threat. For sure, we charge. I, I'm glad you said that because I did think we did read the biography or one of the biographies on uh, Paul Robeson and he and uh, William Patterson. Uh, we charge genocide. That was their goal uh, to take the United States before a global court. And then and it's particularly in this time period where you're having all of the uh, so-called uh, anti-colonial sentiments and uh, so-called independence on the continent and all these other uh, non-white countries uh i would see yeah i could see where that would at least rankle suspicion it would be something i'd be paying attention to if i had racist white supremacist dedication and leanings i would certainly be keeping my eye on it um in the newspaper as she said covered in thorough detail in the 1940s and 50s that it'd be no internet like that is amazing uh let's see some of the folks who dialed in with questions for dr mccray uh, Thomas in New York, if you had a question, you should be with us. Proceed. Let's see, did you get, get uh, your line unmuted, sir? Might need a second. We'll give you a moment to get your uh, line unmuted or to get to a comfortable location. Oops. Maybe I didn't hit the correct line. Oh, I did. I did. Uh, let's see. We'll get our next caller. Tragging. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Dr. McCray? Uh, yes. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to the guests. Uh, to the doctor. Um, what do you think is the most significant Thing that a white woman can say or do when they're in contact with a non-white person. You mean in conversation or in conflict or or just in general? Uh, I, th- I think that would uh, fall into... Uh, what I was uh, asking about um, speech and action, yes, speech or action. What What do you think is the most significant thing 
that a white person can share with a non-white person under the global system of racism and white supremacy, of course. I think, um, I don't know if it would be the most, I mean, I think there are a lot of things. I think the acknowledgement of the system and of white women's complicity um, in that system is important before sort of any other um, like steps can be taken. Um, I think there's also, I think you also have to acknowledge as a, a white woman the, the danger um, that you can put um, black men in, right? Historically and even currently. Okay. I don't know if that gets at what you, if that's along the No, that, that's 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 uh, that's great. That's great. Sounds sounds constructive to me. Did you have what another question, you sir? A white one to say. <laughs> no, sir. I don't have another question. Oh, okay. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see, Mo in Dallas. Hopefully, much warmer and no more water boil notices. Uh, Mo in Dallas, did you have a question for Dr. McRae? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, um, Dallas is warming up uh, to respond to that, and water boiling is an issue, but we have a lot of busted pipes. Um, thank you guys for the program. Um, Greetings, uh, listeners and callers, and um, greetings to the guests. I have a few questions. Um, uh, my, my first question would be, uh, should Carolyn should Bryan be in jail? Um, uh, when Gus asked you the question, you gave, when Gus asked you about that, you gave a kind of extensive answer, and I didn't get a clear answer. Should she be in jail? Um, for her role in Emmett Till's murder? I think if she goes to trial and the story of her lying is um, brought, yes, that she's an um, accessory um, to the murder of Emmett Till. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, my next question. Um, are you a racist? I hope not. Uh, okay. Um, do you <laughs> I mean, know you, uh, a racist? Yes. Um, okay. Um, could you give me an example of the difference between what makes them a racist and what makes you not racist? acknowledge, I mean, I don't believe in white supremacy. I acknowledge and I think I um, recognize that um, I live in a world that um, is shaped by those politics and policies and power. I think um my attempts 
um, whether they're successful or not, to dismantle that in my daily life would differentiate me from um, a sort of a willful um, racist. Um, do I benefit from being white? Certainly, right? Um, is that recognition enough? No, um, of that. But yeah, I don't. I don't believe in um, racist ideology. Um, so I think that would make me different than um, a racist or a white supremacist. But I'm certainly not immune. Um, to, um, to the way that white supremacist politics and history has shaped the world that we're in. I'm just an active um, participant in trying not to perpetuate that. Okay. Um, have you ever heard anyone... Um, in your personal or professional life, use the word nigger? Yes. Um, do you know what age you were the first time you heard that word? Or your most recent memory? Um, I would think middle school age is like my first recollection. Um, I probably okay. had heard it earlier, but I, I don't recall. Uh, my, um, could you tell me, uh, do you have a functioning definition for the word nigger? Like if I was to define a dog, I would I would define it as a canine with four legs and barked. Do, do you have a functioning definition for the word nigger? Um, historically, a word um, used by um, white men and women to exercise power over people of African descent and to demean, I guess that would be... Um, my functioning definition, historically and currently. Okay. Uh, have you ever um, in your life committed an act of racism? And if you have, uh, could you describe the act that you committed? Um. Yes. Um, well, I can take a recent. Let's see. I think um, I was working with a student, um, a black female student on a paper and um, we were having a conversation about um, what I thought that she needed to do to improve that paper. And I said, um, 
she was upset and I said that um, her tone was aggressive and she said that um, in our discussion that that was um, kind of a racist trope used to describe um, outspoken black women and she did not expect that from me. And that is not what I intended, but for her that was an act of racism and um, and my intent probably didn't matter, right? Thank you, me, my line. Does that answer your? I mean, that's the most recent. Um, could could you describe another event? Or do you have another event? If not, um, that's my last question. Okay. Well, thank you for your question. Did you have another event? I mean, is that what, like, whenever I have done anything that, um, anything that would qualify as an act of racism, if you can think of one, since he asked for another one, if not, we can grab our next caller or actually it, were you able to think of one? I mean, I, I can't, um, let's Um, I attended um, a party in college where um, folks um, invoked the Confederacy in ways that I found, in in ways that were offensive. Um, And so my attendance there um, was certainly participating in an event that I didn't know, but certainly I came to know was, um, um, right, had really racist um, overtones and um, and language. Hmm. You said invoke the Confederacy, like, uh, I don't know, what did they do? Like, what are we talking about? Did they, Coon Man, the Coon Man, we got to put that in. No, 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 like, you know, talked about sort of Confederate heritage, and you can't really do that without, um, right, without participating in sort of an exercise in white supremacy, I don't think. You know, highlighted sort of... um, Like the Confederacy. Hmm. Coon Man, uh, <laughs> VA. Um, when uh, Moen Dallas, when he asked, um, Are you a racist? and you said, I hope not, it sounded like you were going to add a little bit to your response, uh, but he got to his next question. Where, what were you going to add to that question when he asked, Are you a racist? You said, I hope not, and then it sounded like you, you had an addendum. Well, I think about, um, I think a lot um, about um, Stamp from the Beginning, um, Ibram X. Kendi's work and, um, and his sort of invocation of um, racism and anti-racism and um, what that requires, and so I think that's what I was um, thinking about, right? That um, 
is the efforts and actions that um, are required to dismantle racism. And that require the actions of lots of people, right? Um, and require an acknowledgement, right, of the ways that um, racism has shaped us, me, and, and the world that we live in, in the world that I live in. Interesting. I'm glad I got that extra tidbit as we move to our next caller. However, I guess we'll try Thomas in New York again. However, I do my side eye. I say again, uh, and we can put that in context. Now we have rich context now for why I always do this. According to Dr. McRae's work, and I asked her, hey, white people, you will get in trouble with other white people for being ignorant about racism. That is not the case for non-white people. As I said, non-white people are confused about racism, white supremacy. So I always give a side eye when white people quote non-white people about racism. Often they are quoting someone who is confused about what racism is and how it works. Oftentimes white people will quote deceased non-white people. So now it's, you're uh, quoting someone who's not even with us in a physical form who was confused about racism. Very common. Thomas in New York, are you with us, sir? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Um, good evening, doctor. How are you, Stevie? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay. Um, I was hoping you could help me um, because... I just, um, I don't know what to think of um, a white person other than that they're practicing racism when they can't remember a simple um, nigga joke. Um, am I wrong for thinking that? Well, I don't know that you're wrong for thinking that, but I... Um... Have I heard those jokes? Yes. Um, could I repeat one of those jokes? No, I couldn't repeat it. Just, um, does it mean that I haven't heard them or that, that I don't know that they exist? No. Well, so it's, it's that you, you can't repeat I'm not it. sure not I could repeat any remember. joke. Hmm? Uh, it's not that you don't remember it. It's just that you don't feel like you can repeat it. Is that what's the hold up? I don't think I, I don't think I'm able to sort of like not that I'm too scared to. Although I don't think I would say it on um, publicly. I would not. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, I can't recall right and pull up a racist joke for you right now. I wouldn't say it if I could, but I can't do it. So is that like a codified answer that white people give? Like, I'm trying to figure it out because it's been several people that just seem to blink. And I, I just, um, I'm trying to figure it out because white people seem to usually have a pretty good memory. Um, 
Yeah, well, I think I have a good memory, and I've done a lot of work. Um, and um, But I don't sit around listening to that or and haven't. Um, and so I know it's there, but I'm not, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. No problem. Well, did you, you said um, when Gus, First, read his definition of racism, white supremacy. You okay. said that there were multiple systems at play. Um, yes. Can you name a system that people operate on this planet that white people are in charge of or have the power over? Well, there's lots of systems, I think. I mean, institutions, there's lots of institutions. And what I meant by systems is I think we have um, right, expressions of white supremacy that are, are overt and violent and um, fascism, Nazism, the Proud Boys, right? And then we have systems of white supremacy that are um, articulated in colorblind language. Um, I think we have systems of um, white supremacy that are embedded in um, institutions and structures um, in our society that don't announce themselves as loudly as um, neo-Confederates or swastikas or the um, or white nationalists. And so I think that, um, and perhaps I misunderstood um, Gus's definition, but I was thinking of um, sort of multiple iterations um, and systems of um, of white supremacy. Okay, um, but in the in the as far as what people um, operate on this planet, is there any system or institution that is being operated by people that white people don't have control or power over? Sure. Um, I mean, I think there's institutions that um, white people don't have power over, and globally, um, I think we have. Can you, can you just name one? Well, nations. Um, institution. You want an institution like a school? That was your word. You used the word systems and institutes. Um, um, are you a feminist? Yes. Are you married? I am. Okay. Um, um, feminism, um, being, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, white women's attempt to, um, be able to get things from their, their men that they weren't getting. Um, how does that system, how does being a feminist benefit black women? That, that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, so I think the work of Audre Lorde or the um, Kambahi River Collective was a group of black feminists um, in the 70s that talked about um, right the intersectionality of um, race and class and gender and how um, 
black feminism acknowledged that in ways that sort of white feminism had not, um, had seen patriarchy as an oppressive system, but had not understood the way, um, had not acknowledged the experiences of um, of black women. And I think that there's um, plenty of black feminists um, that have defined feminism um, in ways that speak to a broader experience. Is there black male patriarchy in um in this country? Politically? Patriarchy in any any instance is black males in any form of patriarchs in this country. Are there patriarchal systems? Well, I think that um, I guess that black feminists would talk about um, how patriarchy worked in in some of their communities. We'll hang there, Thomas, in New York. I want to see if we can get as many of our callers as possible. Uh, Let's see. We... Craig, Mr. Blue uh, in New York. Mr. Blue in New York, did you have a question for Dr. Uh, McCray? You should be with for us. For Dr. McCray, you should be with us. Echo, echo. Can I be heard? Echo. Sir? Yes, sir, if you could maybe step can away from the radio. Yes, sir, yeah. maybe step if you could get away or turn the volume down. I'll turn the volume down. Can I be heard? Is that better? Yes, sir. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Gus, and thank you to all the guests, and uh, thank you to the guests and all of the um, listeners. Um, first question, um, Dr. McCray, um, have you, do you know of um, Jane Elliott's work? I do. I do. Um, Jane Elliott thinks that and has theorized that um, if you have been educated in America, in particular, that anyone educated in America um, who is classified as white is a racist because of that education. Do you think that's true? That because so you, I guess you're on speakerphone, maybe. Maybe if you could take it off speakerphone, that way it won't echo. We could try it that way. Who's on speakerphone? Not you, Dr. McRae. Mr. Blue, I believe, is on speakerphone. Either uh, if you can't take it off speakerphone, just ask your question, and I'll mute your line so she can respond. That way we won't have all the background distortion uh, because we're hearing the reverb, and it is aggressive. Uh, so let's uh, try with your response again, Dr. McRae, about, uh, yeah, do you think Jane Elliott is correct? No. And she's not correct because <laughs> um, I mean if I take um, the gentleman's quote I think um, she's correct that the education system 
right, has been shaped as I have written, right, and has promoted a kind of gym muted education and unmuted. Um, but I don't think that that's um, a fatal state. <laughs> so I don't think that that means that everyone that's been educated in that system has to, um, and I don't. I mean, that's a, just a huge um, statement. I don't believe that um, you have to be a racist. Right? I, don't, I don't think it's a fatal proposition. I think racism is learned, and I think racism can be unlearned. Now, I'm, I don't think that happens overnight, but um, I think it is not, you know, it is... Um, People wouldn't work so hard to teach it and to um, establish it and to make it into systems, right? They wouldn't have to work so hard if it didn't have to be learned, and therefore I think it can also be unlearned. So that is why I disagree with that statement. Hmm. Okay. Mr. Blue, did you have another question, sir? Yes, I did. Um, please forgive me about the background noise. I'm still learning, and I am a victim of racism and white supremacy. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. I can hear you. Yes, sir. Excellent. Um, um, in the beginning, Gus gave you his definition of racism, white supremacy, which he uses as synonyms, and most of our, most of his guests we have come to the conclusion that um, there is some correctness and truth and honesty in that definition. Within that system, do you think, in particular because your book does focus on white women's role in the system of racism, white supremacy, do you think that in, um, in one of the areas of activi people's activity, which is sex, sex, do you think that non-white people should have be having sexual relationships with people who classify themselves as white. I think that um, consenting adults um, should be able to have sexual relations with whoever they choose and who chooses them. And based on some of the research that you have done, and I'm sure that you've done extensive research into the history of just um, relationships and relations between non-white people and people who classify themselves as white from, say, enslavement to um, present day. Do you think that sexual relationship between white and people who classify themselves as white and non-white people what has it done to produce justice within the system of racism, white supremacy, or change the refinement of racism, white supremacy for, for non-white people? Yeah, I don't know that I can answer that question. Um, I, can, I think I can talk about the like larger politics of that, but I haven't studied um, in um, the same sort, with the same sort of academic or disciplinary rigor, um, interracial relationships. Right? I've studied what white supremacists have said about interracial relationships.
it. And my last question, whom do you think is more confused about the system of racism, white supremacy, people who classify themselves as white or non-white people? And thank you. I'll mute my line. Well, I don't know that I can speak um, to that. I think there is lots of denial um, among white Americans about the role white supremacy has played in our institutions, in our history, in our current events. Hmm. And there are lots of professions of sort of innocence, um, but... Professions of innocence was that was that it, Doctor McRae, or? Yeah. Hmm, okay. Oh, let's see. The I don't feel qualified uh, to speak for all people's sort of um, experiences. Hmm. Okay. Much obliged, uh, Mister Blue. Uh, our caller, I guess you're on the Skype line. Uh, did you have a question for Doctor McRae? You should be with us. Caller on the Skype line, you just listening, or did you have a question? Not hearing you. Last check, still not hearing you. Did you have a question? Or uh, you just can you hear me good? Oh, okay. Yes, sir. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were talking about me. Uh, yes, I have a question. Uh, uh, how you doing, Mrs. McCray? Um, I have a few questions, if you wouldn't mind asking. I'll keep it brief and uh, keep it precise. Um... What should a black man do if he is accused of rape by a white woman? Hello? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I hmm. mean, right? The um, one answer would be, right? Ideally, you could go to the justice system to sort of seek justice, but we know that that does not um, work. So, in many cases, so I, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, is that even, you saying you don't know, is that even considering the, the context under which you study as far as white supremacy? Because wouldn't you be able to use that previous context and to current society and apply some type of... Um, well. I'm not, the recourse would have been to flee, right, in the period I studied. If you were accused um, in the Jim Crow South of raping a white woman, um, it, that accusation often carried um, it, a sentence with it, right? I mean, there was um, sort of no intervention between the accusation and the punishment, whether it be um, by vigilance or by the court system. Okay. <clears throat> Next question. Um, 
Oh, this is, yeah, I was waiting for this question. How do you think Ben Tillman influenced the current generation of white people, not just in uh, uh, North Carolina or South Carolina, in general, um, globally, uh, United States, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know globally, and I think um, I think what um, Ben Tillman did, right, was... Um, show how sort of white supremacist politics could be used to um, shape the political trajectory, right, of a state and how it could um, be used to build political coalitions that created racial injustice and um, that sustained and supported racist violence. I think Steve Kanerwitz's work on Ben Tillman is particularly helpful um, and sort of how Ben Tillman um, worked, right, and demonstrated how violence and white supremacist politics um, went hand in hand. Have you ever or known anyone to participate in blackface? No. Um, how can racism be unlearned? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, how can racism be unlearned? Oh, was you going to say something to that last question? I think I interjected. Uh, no, not personally. Uh, uh, so you know people who's participated in blackface? Right, not personally, but I think historically, right, I've read lots about it and Eric Lott's work and... Um, Okay. Can I ask what year you graduated high school? Um, yes, 1985. Okay. And you said you've never seen blackface participated personally at all? Like, have I ever been to, like, a place that people were participating have you ever seen in blackface? No. I mean, have okay. I seen? Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, and... That was my last question. How can racism be unlearned? I think in part by the things that um, right are happening. I think by um, changing the way we teach American history in our schools. I think by um, reading widely. I think by having discussions. Um, I think by listening. I think by studying African American history and Native American history and um, Latinx history in terms of the United States. I think um, by reading um, James Baldwin and Loretta Ross and um, Ibram X. Kendi and W.B. Du Bois, and I think there's, um, I think by studying sort of how white supremacy has worked, we can um, call it out um, and work to dismantle it in institutions. I mean, I think um, the same way that white supremacy was built into our society are the same ways that we can sort of undo it, right? That it's work that's required at 
local levels and schools and in workplaces and in homes and in churches and in electoral politics and in cultural politics. I think the um, places that white women work to build white supremacy, white supremacist politics into American society are the very places um, that people have worked and um, will continue to work to dismantle it. Can I, can, I, can I ask another question, Gus, or should we keep it moving? Uh, I want to pivot and make sure we get our last few folks that dialed in before Dr. McRae has to depart. Uh, say the caller at nine zero. Yes, sir. I appreciate you. Oh, for sure. Thank you, sir. The caller at nine zero two nine nine zero two nine. Did you have a question for Dr. McRae? Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers and listeners, and uh, welcome to the show, Dr. McRae. Um, Thank you. Welcome. Um, how have white women gone um, basically undetected, almost under the radar when it comes to racism, white supremacy? How has that been functioning from your level? Um, um, well, I think it depends on who you're talking to about it being undetected. I think, um, right? In the Jim Crow South and in the Jim Crow Nation, um, black women um, knew that um, this work was going on, and black men knew this work was going on. I think um, how why has it been um, undetected in sort of historical research and in um, the way we talk about history is a is a different um, sort of question. And I think um, there's a kind of gender essentialism um, that's built in to um, ideas about um, women's political activity. I think if you look at um, even recently, if we think about the elections and this, um, the headlines that talk about surprise, right, that white women voted a particular way. and really the historical evidence is there that suggests that um, we shouldn't be surprised. Um, so I think, um, I think part of it is um, we're in Women's History Month and the story of um, women in American history that is often told, right, is about the women sort of pushing for an expansion of democracy, and that's a really important story, but that's not the only story. And so I think that story um, came to sort of occupy um, the first wave of um, scholarship on, um, on women and that... Um, And so some of these cases um, weren't looked at, you know, this notion that women have been sort of moral arbiters and would clean up politics and have this sort of maternal ethos that um, spreads, you know, to a, a larger population, um, I think are sort of tropes that have um, shaped the way that we've looked at women and maybe um, shaped um the questions that we have not asked. Thank you for that question. Uh, 
much obliged uh, caller who dialed in. I guess that that was your question, sorry, sir. Sorry there, Mark. Yeah, that was one of my questions. I, I wanted to ask a, a two other ones just real quick. One is information, just asking about her um, knowledge in regards to the, the actual books as far as how she gathered that information or what she could point us to as far as information in regards to white women changing the books in public schools. Uh, where did you get that information, Mrs. McCray? If you don't mind me asking, if anything we could, oh, no. I could look into. Oh, um, For sure. Well, so... Um, there's work, um, work by Karen Cox that looks at the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and they were really central in this sort of textbook um, selection and textbook censorship. And so I think her work that has looked at the United Daughters of the Confederacy, I looked at um, women's papers who had been involved in the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, that were archived at the University of Georgia, among other places, um, and looked at the kind of S and uncovered the kind of essay contests that they conducted in schools. Um, and, and so that, in terms of primary research, um, the United Daughters of the Confederacy um, periodical, the Daughters of the American Revolution periodicals. Um, were sort of the, the primary materials that I looked at um, to sort of uncover that story. Okay, okay. And one last question, just um, why, why are white women such as yourself interested in this field and what, what, do, you, what do you hope to accomplish by doing this? That's what I'm, I'm actually asking. Yeah. Um, well, I think as a historian, Right, my interest has been um, sort of how systems of inequity are maintained. I'm interested in um, inequities in public education. I'm interested in um, why the system of um, racial segregation um, was so long lasting and its different manifestations. And so I think um, from like a um, like a professional standpoint, those are the questions that have sort of shaped um, the body of research um, that I've done and am doing. Um, and I, I also um, think that we live in a world um, that it's really um, – critically important for um, us to figure out, right, um, who's working, who's doing this work, and where they're doing this work, um, and be sort of um, vigilant in dismantling it. So from like a humanity sense, I want to live in a better world. And um, in order to do that, I think, um, in addition to sort of my historical work, um, you know, I think it's important for um, me and I hope others, right, to understand sort of how these systems are sustained so we can begin um, a more collective effort or we can um, 
construct or offer models for how people can sort of begin to um, erode the system of inequality that has caused um, just untold damage um, to humanity, to our nation, um, to people and mothers and fathers and families and children. And so I think that from like a human sense. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your time and energy. Thank you. Alex in Austin, do you have a question for Dr. McRae? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, thank you. Hi, guys. Uh, hello, Dr. McRae. Welcome. Hello. I'm sorry if you already addressed this. Would you describe yourself as a racist? No. How about in your time growing up, would you describe your mother and father or your guardians as racists? At times. At times, as if, does that mean that it's something that can be kind of turned on and turned off? Well, no, but if I'm looking for evidence, right, um, about... Um, Do they believe in human equality, right? And would they deny um, investment in white supremacy? Yes. Okay. Um, right. Does that mean that they didn't um, participate in that project at times? No. You stated that racism can be unlearned. Who, could you give us an example of uh, somebody you've known that has unlearned racism? Well, I think there um well, I think there are examples of somebody you Robert know, preferably Zellner. maybe somebody you know, like personally. Well, I hope I, um Yeah, I have students, right, who have said they've grown up in white supremacist households and that they want to learn something different and that's their pursuit is to sort of understand and embrace a world that's different than the one that they've grown up um, being educated in. So I think there's, um, you know, sort of countless examples of students every semester who talk about that sort of process. So would you recommend any specific methods to help somebody unlearn racism? Well, I'm a historian, so I would recommend reading, right? I would recommend educating um, yourself about um, history, about um, spirituality, about philosophy. I would say go read James Baldwin. I would say look at um, um, the sort of breadth of um, of American history and read as, I mean, in a, in, we're talking about it in sort of a national sense, read as many, um, read as widely as you can, right? And, and um, study um, to unlearn, right? To understand um, the past and to unlearn and recognize, right? The falsehoods and the damage that's being perpetuated. 
Can I ask, is English your first language? It is. Are you fluent in any in any other languages? I am not fluent in any other languages. That's all I have to ask. Thank you. Thank you. Our caller in California, one one five nine one one five nine. Did you have a question for Doctor McRae? You just listening, or did you have a question for Doctor McRae? One one five nine. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I was I was muted. Um, greetings, guys. Greetings, um, doctor. Greetings, callers and listeners. I do have a question, um, doctor. Why do you think it is that um, there's very um, there seems to be very little white people who are attempting to produce a system of justice where no one is allowed to be mistreated and those who need the most help receive constructive help. Sorry, if I didn't hear the question. Why do you think there is so little white people attempting to produce a system where no one is allowed to be mistreated and those who need the most help receive the most help? Well, I, I think there are, I mean, I don't like, are there enough people doing that work? No. <laughs> Are there some people doing that work? Yes. Um, why aren't more people doing that work? White people. Why, why aren't there more, more white, people, people? white people doing that work? Um, I think in part it's the um, investment, right, and um, – And an education, right, that has um, shaped the way they think about the world. I think there's those who are invested in a system of white supremacy. There's those that deny that that system is working. Um, you know, I think there's a range of reasons why, right, from the most committed um on down. Do you think a main reason could be that most white people don't care about black people? Could that be a reason? Yes, that could be a reason. Do I know that? I don't know that. Thank you for your time. Much obliged. Uh, almost done. Uh, let's see. Our caller. <laughs> confused. Uh, caller from a blocked number. Did you have a question for Dr. McRae, best-selling author of Mothers of Massive Resistance? Uh, caller from a blocked number. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I can hear you. Hello? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry about the block number. I'm calling through Skype. Um, greetings, Gus, callers, listeners, and greetings to the guests. Uh, thank you for this program. The information has been uh, very, very informative and very constructive. Lots of things I never really thought about. Um, 
But I, I noticed that with many of the um, the examples that you guys have been going over regarding uh, ways and different roles in which white women perpetuated the system of white supremacy, the majority of them have been um, sort of in official or institutional uh, capacities. And I wondered if, uh, if the guest could, uh, I don't know if this is within your area or maybe perhaps as a white woman, you may have personal experience. Uh, if you could give some examples of something maybe on a more personal level or uh, anecdotal level, I mean, something like what uh, white women do, how do they perpetuate it at, in the role of, uh, let's say, uh, mothers and sisters in the home, uh, you know, on a person-to-person basis, not really in an institutional capacity, but on a personal, on a person-to-person basis. Uh, thank mm-hmm. you. I'll mute. Sure. Um well, I think motherhood's a key way that um that constructions of motherhood are have been racialized. And so ideas of um you know, the stories you choose to read your children, um the lessons in racial etiquette and distance um that you teach. I think um if you read like in lots of um, autobiographies from the Jim Crow South, from both um, black and white women, you have stories of when, um, right, a white woman in the house, right, drew the line, right, for the children um, and said, no, you're too old now to play together or, um, or punished, right, white, and black children for um, crossing these sort of customary lines. So you're right that most of the examples I gave were institutional um, because that's sort of the research um, that I did. But certainly um, there one way that white supremacy and racism and ideas about race are passed down are are through sort of that informal family education um, and the perpetuation of sort of racist customs and the work of Jennifer Ritterhouse called Growing Up Jim Crow looks at those, um, so many of those lessons that um, are taught in the home. So yeah, that's it. thank you for that question. Much obliged, sir. Uh, I think we're almost done. Our caller, Irie in Louisiana, I want to preface her question with a snippet from your book. Man, talk about white people cannot be ignorant about racism. This is one of the best passages, excuse me, in Mothers of Massive Resistance. Let me get a sip of water so I can read it correctly. Irie in Louisiana, where you grew up at, right? Some of your parents, parents, Family members uh, may have experienced this. So she writes in New Orleans, the white women of the ninth ward offered a more direct lesson in white supremacy and the costs of racial transgression to the young Ruby bridges and their white neighbors. When the courts forced the predominantly white ninth ward school, William France elementary to integrate white working class women with babies on their hips and aprons, tied around their shirt waists stood outside their neighborhood school for nearly a year 
yelling at bridges, a first grade girl, and the dwindling numbers of white students who climbed those stairs with her. Witnessing their protest, John Steinbeck called them cheerleaders and described them as crazy actors playing to a crazy audience. Dr. Welsing encouraged us to not use that word crazy to describe racists. Uh, They did not see themselves as crazy, but as good mothers protecting their children. Bridges was not their only target. White mothers harassed their white neighbors who continued to walk their white children to school, reported their transgressions of the color line to their employers and encouraged their children to bully their former schoolmates who kept attending integrated schools. Bridges and her family suffered threats of violence, alienation, consistent harassment and a life of psychic scars. The few white parents who continued to send their children to school, lost their city jobs, had their electricity cut off, and had their homes vandalized. The actions ensured that even whites willing to integrate might succumb to community pressure. As working-class women, the Daily Mob did not believe that they could change federal court decisions or even those of the state house. They knew they lacked political capital but they did act as if their political protest could affect their local school and neighborhood. Without the economic security or stability to escape the suburbs, they protected their investments in white privilege, should be white supremacy, where they could, in their homes, in their schools, and on their streets. In New Orleans, as in Little Rock, white women demonstrated how they invested they were they demonstrated how invested they were in white supremacy at the same cost at the same time they taught their own children that maintaining school segregation was worth more than their education or their neighborhood friendships dedication dedication Irie in Louisiana did you have a question for Dr. McCray Yeah, um, that's crazy. Um, I used to pass. It's not crazy. It's not um, crazy. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Right. I I got to read the word guy, um, and I'm still going through the ISIS papers, but I used to, um, we used to have to drop a kid off at that school, and I learned about it, and I didn't understand um, the fury then, and hearing that, that, that's tragic. Um, so I had two questions. Um, I didn't get to hear everything, but um, I didn't want to miss the chance to ask your guests a question. So thanks for being on the show. And uh, hello, Gus, and hello to the uh, people on the line. So my first question was, um, pardon if you discuss this, but this is what I'm wondering. Why do white women dominate in uh, primary education in uh, America, North America, well, specifically the United States. As teachers and PTA members, and is that what, like, teachers, teachers, school boards, uh, counselors, uh, uh, what is it, Um, therapists, PT, teachers, all that, the people that, you know, make the IEPs and social workers. 
even paraprofessionals. So I think there's um, like a couple of um, kind of like historical answers. First of all, education was open um, to women, right? And so for generations, um, it was a professional job, right, open for women. It was dominated by women, over 82% of elementary school teachers in the 1930s and 40s were um, women. I think the other thing is when, um, in 1954, when um, the Brown decision desegregated schools, um, and in the way it was implemented, lots of black educators and black principals who had worked in segregated schools lost their job right, as a result of integration. So I think so often when we talk about um, racial integration, we talk about the students, um, but there's a huge loss in, um, in black communities of um, the jobs of educators and principals. And, and so in the American South, as a result of um, the Brown decision, there's a loss sort of generationally of um, black educators in the public school system. Okay. Um, I, I got a, 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 a third question, so I'm gonna ask the second one. Um, you said something about uh, people educating themselves by reading. You gave a list of uh, authors. Um, what do you think about people uh, being becoming educated so they can so white supremacy can be eliminated? What if they read George Jackson or Kwame Ture? What about those authors? What do you think of them? Oh, for sure. Um, like uh, Asan um, Kwame Ture and um, my and some of my classes, and I think um, I have my students read um, Angela Davis and George Jackson and um, the Soledad Brothers and the stories um, and the writings out of um, the Attica Prison Uprising. I mean, I think right there's so much that. Um, to read um, sort of broadly, so I think it's important, yes, to um, read those authors as well. Okay. So that really lends to the second question, which is not the third question. Um, <laughs> considering that white women, um, you just talked about where they are in education um, because of, you know, historics and different things people can do to educate. Uh, I'm, supposing you mean white people can do or read to educate. This is a conclusion I have, and the conclusion which I'll say first if I ask the question, that in, in general, white people are very greedy and lazy, and that white supremacy is based out of a need for comfort in the sense of they're not willing to do things that make them uncomfortable, and they, they hoard resources and information um, amongst themselves. So this last question for you is, as a suspected racist, what material comfort are you willing to give up for the rest of your life 
to aid to the end of white supremacy and the institution of a system of justice in which no one is mistreated and whoever needs help gets the most constructive help. And when I say material comfort, I don't mean like your sofa or your toaster oven. I mean IRA, bank account, income, house. What are what material comfort are you willing to give up? Well, I hope that um my sort of commitment um to sort of education, right? And um wait, wait, wait. I don't wanna be rude. Material concrete so like would I give how much money or wealth right. would I give to endeavors that would come in necessarily give how I'm a, I'm gonna say it again. Something that you get now that you've probably been getting and foresee getting into the future that is of, let's say, economic value, whether whether it's money or whether it's something considered as personal so-called property, not intellectual property, something, something again, that can be leveraged as a means of exchange in the racist system that uses, uh, that's part of economics. What are you willing to give up? for the rest of your life. So if it's, for instance, I don't want to give you an answer, but if it would be your, uh, the income you make from teaching at the university where you still teach, but you don't get paid, what are you willing to give up in order to help replace the system with justice? Because we're at a disadvantage also, not just mentally, but we're also at a disadvantage economically. And so right. you all you you're in a position of comfort because <laughs> you know what I'm saying uh, economically because of white supremacy. So in order to help reverse that, along with all the reading that you're advocating for, what what are, what material are you willing to give up? Yeah, I wouldn't give up. I mean. Um... Yeah, I don't think I understand, like, if you mean, like, would I leave my teaching position so that, um, and give up that sort of my economic livelihood? Um, No, no, no. I don't want to take too much time just in case you have to. Yeah, I don't really under, yeah. I mean. So let me say it plainly. Would you teach what you're teaching now? which you claim is in the pursuit of replacing white supremacy with with justice, would you do that for the rest of your life from this day forward if they told you you would not get paid? No. (laughs) No. I would not do this for the rest of my life if I was not getting paid, I don't think. Would I read? Would I write? Yes. But would I give up... um, my job right now? No, I wouldn't. You do realize there were black people that had to work for free, right, for all their lives, and you wouldn't. I do realize that, and I think that is completely. Um, yes, I do realize that. <laughs> um, right. Right. Well, have a good night. Thank you, Gus, and I'm in my line for now. 
Irie in Louisiana. I believe we nabbed our callers uh, before we let you depart. Thank you for being so generous with your time. The last uh, section uh, from the book, uh, and this was important because just for lots of reasons, even some of the guests that we had on the program, Kelly J. Baker uh, and others, uh, where we've talked about this um, important for, t- in fact, I even, I even have a, a sound clip. that was so funny. My, one of my favorite movies uh, in all of the world, driving Miss Daisy to help us draw the uh, point home. So this is slight snippet from driving Miss Daisy. And then we'll get my last question in before we let Dr. McCray go uh, driving Miss Daisy first. <laughs> Hulk, yeah. put that azalea on Neo Bowers, Greg. No, that Miss Rose Bowers, uh, She asked me to bring it out here for her. All right. Well, uh, where is Grave at, Miss Daisy? I'm not exactly sure. I know it's two rows over that way. You'll see the headstone, Bower. Well, what's the matter? Hmm? Oh, nothing. Nothing. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong at all. Now, now, Miss Daisy, you, you, you I say... I told you, it's two rows over that way. It says Bower on the headstone. Bower, yes. Now, what that look like, Miss Daisy? What are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about I can't read, man. What? I can't read, Miss Daisy. Then how come I see you looking at the paper all the time? Well, that's, that's just it. I just be looking. Well, I, I kind of dope out what's going on from the pictures sometimes. You know your letters, don't you? Oh, yes, ma'am. I know my ABC is pretty good. I just can't read. Stop saying that. You're making me mad. If you know your letters, then you can read. You just don't know you can read. Ma'am? I taught some of the stupidest children God ever put on the face of this earth, and all of them could read well enough to find the name on the tombstone. Well, yes, Miss The name is Bauer. B, 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 Bauer. What does that B letter sound like? B? Of course. Uh, 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 uh. That's the last part. Bauer. What letter sounds like er? Uh, 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 uh. So the first letter is a B. And the last letter is a R. B R. B-R, 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 even sounds like Bauer, doesn't it? It sure do, Miss Daisy. It sure do. <laughs> that it? That's it. We ain't gonna worry about what come in the middle. No, not right now. It'll be enough for you to find it. Go on now. <laughs> yeah, some right. Go on now. Woo! One of the greatest films of all time. It does not get better than Hollywood. A chuckling, illiterate, black male chauffeur to drive around a racist white school teacher who you probably wouldn't even think of as a racist if you watch the movie. But white women like her are the reason this black male chauffeur is illiterate and cannot find the gravestone. Now, to pivot back to Mothers of Massive Resistance, isn't Morgan Freeman the greatest national treasure? Uh, She writes, soon, 
make sure we get the names correct soon. Nell Battle Lewis introduced her weekly column, incidentally, which would run almost uninterrupted for the next 45 years. Dedication. Prophetically, her column began with a scene in a park depicting two black men and one black woman whose contented laughter, like what we just heard, broke forth frequently and the red meat of the melon disappeared rapidly. Later, her caricatures acknowledged the calming comfort offered by deferential Negroes who wave to you even when they don't know you. Contented black North Carolinians joined Lewis's frequent romanticized depictions of black-white relationships embodied in her print tributes to Mammy. She noted that the ties between Mammy and her white children were more than imaginative gossamer as she lamented a system based on paternalism that was now passing with the changing times. In return for their loyalty and love, Lewis said that Mammies would receive no earthly reward but the same spiritual reward as white folks they worked for. Religion of white supremacy. In fact, the Mammy of her childhood claimed she came as near being Christian as anyone who ever lived. For Lewis, Mammies embodied the epitome of black leadership serving in a position of deference, devotion to independency to white middle class women. She goes on. Uh, I thought that was so important even related to uh, the what we heard from Driving Miss Daisy because you write that sometimes the racist white supremacists, they could kind of alter their approach to business. Sometimes they could be really overtly racist and sometimes they could make it sound as though they had white, uh, excuse me, black friends uh, and as though they liked black people or wanted to support Booker T. Washington or whatever, as long as it was separate white dominated and deferential black people. You see these kind of period pieces uh, romanticized regularly, I think in television film throughout uh, driving Miss Daisy. Did you have a, a thought on that one, Dr. McCray? I mean, I think the passage in the book and the clip that you played are um, echo each other, <laughs> um, right? One, a Hollywood production, and one, the writings of a woman in the 1920s. So I think um, your examples um, that you pulled out, I think, um, speak to the sort of consistency over time of that imagery and its power. think driving Miss Daisy much like birth of a nation which you talk about in the book as well the power of of Hollywood to reinforce these notions of white supremacy and even the role of white women and that you just want to pick two films uh, driving Miss Daisy and birth of a nation the role of white women uh, in those films uh, that are I would say should be thought of maybe one and the same maybe people don't think of them in that manner uh it has been uh, a hoot discussing. I mean, I'm sorry. No, I was like gone with the wind. I mean, you oh. have, you know, blockbuster in the um, 30s, right? The same sort of the role of white women there. The help 
Uh, it's quite a few uh, that you can, you know, pick out white women and, and their role in all mm-hmm. of this. Uh, the, you know, I've said the child labor laws, that, that clip was important, but the, you talked about the child labor laws and the failure to get those passed uh, within that same uh, chapter. And it just stuck out to me as important. I've kind of lumped that in uh, in some my collective analysis in terms of white people not putting very much value on children. Uh, and child labor laws is another one. It's not exactly like white people in the U.S. were proud and expeditious in passing laws to protect the welfare of even white children in the labor force. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of opposition, particularly among the same crowd that supports racial segregation, that child labor laws that would usurp the state's ability to control and organize the labor of its citizens, children or not. And so um, opposition to um, federal child labor laws coincided with um, a commitment to racial segregation for many people. Lots of important info. Could talk about it for a long time. Much obliged for uh, indulging, saying enough time to get through all of our callers and what have you. Uh, our guest has been Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Gillespie. I, know, I thought it was going to be an hour. <laughs> we had lots of callers. I didn't know it was going to be so much interest, but we did have a lot of folks who knew about your book in advance. So, you know, I'm thankful we were able to get through all the callers and all of their robust questions. Uh, check out Mothers of Massive Resistance. I took lots of uh, notes and highlights. You'll even see the, I think, correct pronunciation of the word nigger. Nigra uh, even pops up in the book. It's amazing. Uh, but much obliged, Dr. McRae, for uh, hanging out, answering our questions this Wednesday evening. Women's History Month, no less. What a way to start the month. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For sure. For sure. Evening, Dr. McRae. It has been a hoot. Uh, again, we've been discussing mothers of massive resistance uh, here on the cows. I know a lot of listeners already uh, knew of the work. Thank you, uh, Dr. McRae. We'll keep an eye out on your uh, future works and uh, maybe we can have you back on the program. Continue to Im- discuss the importance of white women and the role of white supremacy but much obliged for your time and energy ma'am uh let's see thank you thank you for sure for your callers for sure for sure thanks to the callers also lots of great questions for dr mccray this evening uh we will be here uh tomorrow the book club i can't believe it like our timing it's women's history month March, all that, but it is also to the day, today being March 3rd, to the day, 30 years ago, Rodney King beaten in Southern California. 30 years to the day, 1991. Amazing. Black misandry. And I thought it amazing because Rodney King was mentioned almost every week as we read about the O.J. Simpson murder trial. We just finished that up last Thursday. Uh, I think it might be uh, one of the best sequels in terms of consecutive book reads that we've ever had uh, on the Cows Book Club, which is saying a lot. Book Club is 10 years old now. We did read back to back autobiography of Malcolm X and then the autobiography of Asada Shakur. So 
that was pretty high quality and, you know, related consecutive read uh, back in 2015. But I mean, OJ Simpson to Geronimo Pratt. And for people, if you don't know Geronimo Pratt, he's a member of the Black Panther. I mean, you'll learn a lot. Don't have to go through all that. It's in the book. But even even the links between these two cases, it's not just Johnny Cochran, lead attorney for both of these cases, black male wrongly accused of a double murder. Uh, it is Geronimo Pratt and OJ Simpson are the exact same age. They were both born in 1947. In fact, they were born within about six weeks of each other. OJ Simpson's mother, Eunice, Geronimo Pratt's mother, Eunice. Double murder, LAPD, LA prosecuting attorney. Both of these individuals seem like they had the entire government aligned to prosecute them. It might even be that the enforcement, the LA, because it's the same police department, some of the same people are involved, I believe, uh, that the LA police, LAPD, they knew, it's no doubt, they knew Geronimo Pratt did not commit these murders. No doubt, no ifs, no ands, no buts. Wrongfully incarcerated, wrongfully convicted. We know he didn't do it. It may be that in both instances, they knew we got a black male who did not commit these crimes. Eh, whatever. Convict them anyway. That's what we do. Negras. The overlap is amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Wait, even when you hear the introduction tomorrow, they were going to talk to Geronimo Pratt and Johnny Cochran after they were released. And of course, O.J. Simpson had to come up because that was, I think, only, I think about a year and a half after O.J. Simpson, the O.J. Simpson verdict uh, in the criminal trial. Then Geronimo Pratt was released about a year and a half, a half later. So. Amazing. I'm so glad that we're reading them uh, back to back tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we got lots of feedback from many, many people, cows, listeners, many folks even said, I normally do not pay attention to the book club at all. I don't care nothing about that. Like, whatever. I don't I can't listen to someone read or whatever, but they listened to O.J. Simpson and many of them were stunned. I guess they thought he did it also or, you know, didn't pay attention to it. Lots of things in that range. Just didn't know. Wowie, you can learn a lot about racism through O.J. Simpson. The same applies to Geronimo Pratt. And it would be extra because you also be learning a lot about uh, the Black Panther Party and Cointelpro, uh, which is something Geronimo Pratt said himself. He said, man, it seems like not too many people know very much about Cointelpro. And there should be lots more scholarship on what this was all about. There is quite a bit of detail in the book we're reading. Last Man Standing tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Even OJ Simpson is mentioned in the book, but it's way later because, you know, they got to go through he, Geronimo Pratt had been in prison for 25 years by the time we got to the OJ Simpson trial. So, but OJ is mentioned in the book also, but I'm looking forward. Johnny Cochran is front and said the brilliance of Johnny L Cochran Jr. Who said this case is the most important case of his life not the oj simpson trial although it's exactly the same trial but this case in fact this case probably prepared him to be like oh yeah they probably did the same thing they do this all the time yeah yeah some nigger will but yep he did it yeah 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 yeah. put the glove here yeah yeah, yeah. 
Mark Furman, yeah, yeah, yeah. seen all that before. Uh, anyway, looking forward to that tomorrow. Uh, this is, in fact, this is this will be the first time in a long time we are reading a book I've already read. Uh, I read this book even before the cows existed. This is what Gus T was studying before the cows existed was matters related to Cointel Pro, and I thought this book was constructive, kind of frightening. But constructive, very important people should at the Geronimo Pratt is a two tour Vietnam veteran. Like people should be very uh informed about who he was and Black Panther Party member, victim of racism. I mean, wow. Geronimo Jijaga Pratt. Part two to the OJ Simpson trial. Excellent selection, if I do say so myself. Uh, quickly, we'll go to callers, uh, see if folks have any final thoughts they want to share about Dr. McCray. Uh, I will just say, I am always suspicious when white people reference non-white people. And she did a lot of that through the course of the broadcast. Uh, she referenced Dr. Brenda Gale Plummer. Now, I'm not familiar with her work, so she might be absolutely brilliant and have all of the information we need to solve this problem that may be the case I don't know her uh, scholarship I can tell folks one of uh, the books that she apparently wrote uh, the full title uh, in search of power African Americans in the era of decolonization 1956 to 1974 I uh, haven't read it. it was published in 2012 check it out see if it's constructive but uh, most of the time when I hear white people reference non-white people and I mean she was informed she talked about uh, she knew Kwame Ture ready for evolution George Jackson was rattling off the books blood in my eyes sold the dad brother boom, 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 boom. oh yeah not even about racism at all generally it's been my experience when they start quoting uh, books of non-white people it's not Dr. Marimba Ani it's not Dr. Welsing, ISIS papers. It's not medical apartheid even. It's not generally speaking a book that is very highly accurate about what it means to be white. Dedication to racism, white supremacy, what even solid accurate definitions for white supremacy, racism, not all this white ally and what does it mean? Like, come on, come on, move that aside. All these folks are victims of racism, victims guaranteed qualified. They can say what they say, but I always feel like, oh, they're probably practicing racism, white supremacy right there, referencing another non-white person who is probably confused about racism, white supremacy. Very rare to find victims who, you know, are publishing, allowed to publish and speak uh, accurately about white supremacy, racism, what it means to be classified as white uh that said white women are super important i hope some of that came through uh, i wish i did make an error i really prefer even though i did i had the sound clip and everything that is important you know i would i don't even think people would think about that with films the way white people kind of romanticize the illiterate cowardly deferential black people but uh the child labor laws and she talked about even how there was a lot of racists who opposed them because they didn't want federal intervention adding that to my list so it's lengthy in terms of how did why does Gus keep saying that white people don't care about children they brag about mammies we did hear some of that they brag about this right the help they have tons of movies that span generations you can't say decades generations where they have bragged about turning over their white children to black people 
to nurse wet diapers the whole nine uh, they the boy scouts they're out of business sexual abuse of children the catholic church it just goes on and Jerry Sandusky if you want to talk about individuals where they're allowed to go out and do this with impunity for decades Jeffrey Epstein if you want to talk about on an institutional basis in fact I just tweeted uh, they had a children's facility in New Hampshire they said for 60 years they allowed abuse to run rampant hundreds of children sexually abused violated for 60 years and it just goes on and on Jimmy Sal I mean you can just pile up when you start to look at this in aggregate all of the shootings at the school and they don't do anything about it and like I said like we talked about child labor laws not exactly something that they were jumping up and down let's get this done expeditiously we care about children that is not the case that is a flagrant component of white culture they do not care about children particularly black children but I mean that's not even relevant they do not care about children that should be factored in and how we process all of this sense of urgency and something to think about before you get to the bedroom I am in an environment that does not value children I have to be mindful of that at all times that everything about this environment is reflective of the fact white people do not value children drastically different way to think before you go hop in the bed let's make sure we're taking this extra serious because we're going to not just have a child we're going to have a black non-white child grand job with questions we did have a lot of folks who died oh that was the other thing I was going to say man I said it so many times I was going to ask her also do you think it would be accurate if people thought of you as the recipient poster child if you will for affirmative action I was going to ask that too but so much to ask Uh, I said it so many times during the course of the broadcast even if I hadn't asked any questions if it had just been you know listeners can you all can ask your questions for the entire time and I'll just sit listen and you know mind the queue even if that had happened it would be an absolute disgrace for the cows to be sitting around squabbling bickering arguing and doing a whole lot of interviews with other victims of racism Uh, now does that mean we never ever talk to victims absolutely not we've had victims on before we should have Dr. Ruby on to talk about health uh, again soon certainly we've had many constructive programs Dr. Welsing Mr. Fuller Dr. Curry many other more than I could even name right now I'm sure there are other non-white people that we never had on who would have constructive information all of that said what is missing or what there is not too much of questioning individuals classified as white and getting better questioning them questioning them with suspicion that I'm talking to someone who practices white supremacy racism that is what we do not have certainly we don't have enough of it it would be a disgrace I thought that so many like wow just to be able to talk to a suspected racist ask questions 
we could switch this up and be talking to a non-white person and arguing, squabbling, whatever it is, hopefully trying to be constructive, but I would much rather invest our time. White guests only. Let's get better at directly addressing the individuals who are responsible for the problem. Racist woman. Racist man. Racist child. Let's just get right to the source. We can practice with other, you know, talking to other non-white people and getting back with victims. Yeah, yeah. But let's get to the problem. Did folks have a, a quick thought assessment they wanted to get in? We had lots of participation. Hopefully it was constructive. Folks have anything they needed to say before we Never heard. retired firefighter in Florida? Yes, I, I like I like the uh, question. Uh, I can't remember exactly. It was a female caller that that asked the, uh, the guest about uh, what were they willing to sacrifice. I think that's always a very important question uh to to ask uh i i I was going to uh if i had another chance to ask a question uh my question would have been uh about uh about uh uh, i had it right on the tip of my tongue and forgot about it uh would to be uh oh uh have your life has ever been in danger uh books that you uh, write and whatever you may report on about race of white supremacy, have your life been in danger? Also, I like uh, Thomas's uh, uh, question about uh, when he was uh, asking her about uh, uh, the commonality, if it's possible, commonality between uh, black females and white females over this term that's called feminism. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I, I think she would have kind of like had some problems with that, with the, with the answer to that uh, under a global system of racist white supremacy. And uh, that that's it. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Mr. Blue, uh, yes, sir. Yes, um, first of all, thank you for the program. Yet another interesting white guest. I thought that Irie in Louisiana, I believe that's the female's name, you know, my female's name. Um, I just want to be correct, but I thought it was spot on. The question that she asked that reminded me of Dr. Uh, Tommy Curry when he talks about um People classify themselves as white's commitment or what they say is their commitment to white allyism or um, ending racism, white supremacy, bring about justice. Well, really, what is your commitment? What are you willing to give up? Because non-white black people have to give up their lives on a daily basis. And when she asked, well, if you are, if, are you willing to give up? teaching, like not getting paid for teaching, and she said no, I thought that that was a poignant, poignant question that she asked, because it got right to the root of, you're saying that you're writing this book, you're doing this uh, work, um, uh, analyzing and the historical aspects of white women involvement, but what are you willing to give up? And I thought that was a poignant question, and bravo to her 
for that question. That's a question that I wish I had asked. And always thank you because this helps me understand um, how to speak to uh, people who classify themselves as white and ask them critical questions about their involvement as a white person in the system of racism, white supremacy. Excellent question. And I'll meet my line. And thank you, everyone. Thank you. I'll meet my line. Much obliged, Mr. Blue. Uh, Mo in Dallas, yes, sir. Oh. Well, um, I enjoyed the program as well. Um, I was kind of like, I wasn't shocked, but I, I, I guess I was, it was frustrating with how how vague the the guest could could be with um with answering questions like i that like so I have to learn how to structure my questions in a way that doesn't allow for much um you know maneuvering um but I did notice that she would like kind of restate and restructure the question and then answer it um that's just something I noticed um I would have loved to ask her. Um, her opinion on Dr. Welsing's work. Um, I heard Dr. Welsing brought up, um, I think, right before um, I re-asked her brilliant questions, um, and I, I would have, I would have loved to hear her opinion on, on Dr. Welsing's work. So maybe next time. Thank you. I, I meet my line. Hello, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Irie. Yeah. You know what? I feel kind of bad, but I'm a victim. So um, Kwame Ture was on the forefront of my mind because I had just listened to um, one of his uh, orations on organization and mobilization. And when she when she sounded off on the authors, um, he came forward, but all the authors, some of the authors that she listed, in my opinion, they they're easy or they're uh, very, very um, indirect with uh, the non-white authors, especially Dr. Uh, Kiende. I find that he he's 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 soluble to um, white white people, and that's why they like him. And like, of course, they like Audrey Lord because of the I believe it's her um, the sexual confusion. So when I thought like, okay, so I wonder was he like, you know, Kwame Ture because like he would be, in my opinion, a little more um, direct than the rest of them. But I really do. And yes, y'all are right. I should have asked about Dr. Especially Dr. Marimba or Dr. Uh, Francis Crest Welsing. But I found it real interesting how she twisted my question. And I made sure to be specific. I said, what material comfort of substance? I could be wrong, but I think I said that, and I said not something small like I think I said sofa or your toaster oven because I played this game with white people before, and they were like, "Oh, well, you know, I'd give up my my iPhone." I had a white woman say that, so I made sure it was nothing, you know, stupid or frivolous. And then she was like, "Would I give up my job?" No, you know, I didn't ask that. You know, I didn't ask that, but. Racist suspect, and um, it was a good show. So thank you, Gus, and thank you to um, the people on the line. Hotel. 
Much obliged, Irie in Louisiana. Uh, let's see. We'll get get in one more person before we wrap up. Anybody else had a final thought they want to get in? Folks, good. Uh, I had a question. If you can hear me. Yes, sir. Um. Oh, uh, the podcast about uh, Catherine Folsom. How do you spell that? I just tried to look it up on the internet and I couldn't find it. F-O-S-L is her last name. Catherine with a C. Catherine Fossil. Uh, the name of her book is Subversive Southerner. Uh, I think that was like 2014, 2015. Maybe once we get off the air, I can. It's right in that time period, 2014, 2015, somewhere right in there. Okay, cool. And uh second thing is, uh, Gus, I just wanted to, you know, get on air and say that I retract my statement. You know, Gus is not cussed at white women. Gus is not cussed at white people. He's done an extravagant job. Um, very professional. You know, I just want to go on record, go on air and say that for all the listeners, all the callers, all the guests. Appreciate you, Gus. Never will try to diminish any, anything you do. Um, yeah, keep up the good work. Much obliged, sir. I did see he he did offer a retraction uh, on Twitter. And even like I said, I am, you know, human being. So everybody is entitled to their, you know, vanity or what have you. But on a uh, counter racist, like on a broader counter racist spectrum, even this evening, I forgot who it was. One of the um, uh, one of the callers, they asked. Thank you all for not speechifying. Lord Jesus. See, we can get through. That's my goal is to be efficient, try to get to as many folks to get their question in. I didn't really. Sometimes people kind of put their hand up late, which kind of happened today. So I'll be thinking when I start going to people who call in it. Oh, OK, it's maybe just two or three people. And then it'll be like, oh, now it's 10 or 15 people that have questions where I would have maybe switched it up. Right? I went to the line earlier. But thank you all for not speechifying. Excellent job asking questions, everybody. All of that said, one of the callers asked uh, when they said, are, are there any ways that you practiced racism? And she thought right, about it for a while. And she said, uh, there was the one time where I believe she said it was a non-white person, uh, a black, a stu- one of her students. That's what it was. she said. It was a student. They were having some sort of conversation about how can she improve her paper? And she said that the black female victim said, whatever she said, and she said, oh, you're sounding uh, aggressive in the way that you're responding, because that's so common uh, in the system of racism, uh, particularly if you are a black person and you're talking to a white woman or you're talking about racism where you can be described in some way other than professional. You're angry. Remember, we even had the one this past weekend. It was militaristic hair, but it's so, so common uh, to be described, especially Man, Gus T, like you cannot believe the number of times bullied Gus T is you bullied, you know, Dr. Fossil. That was back, you know, some years ago. Or you bullied uh, Dr. McCray tonight. That sort of thing is very, very common. So much obliged for the retraction. Uh, But yes, system of white supremacy. We should all try to be codified. I do not in any way think you will benefit yelling at white women. They uh, can cause a lot of problems. Uh, that's it. We will get ready for Geronimo Pratt tomorrow uh, with the book club. I am excited. Uh, you should really think about this as the sequel to OJ Simpson. Uh, I really 
that's the way I didn't process it in that manner before, but that's the way that you should think about it. Sequel to OJ Simpson, Johnny Cochran's brilliance continues to shine in this case. Uh, it is. At, and if you don't know about Geronimo Pratt, uh, his role with the black Panther party, you will learn a lot. And if you don't know about Cointel pro, you will learn a lot. Uh, excited. Looking forward to it. Continuation of OJ Simpson. I uh, hope this broadcast to start off women's history month worthy of your time and energy much obliged to all the folks who tuned in live hope it was constructive Uh, all of that said sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy Uh, we need our brain computer working at maximum capacity to solve this problem Uh, in addition let us I still say hunker down I know you know I guess they're lifting restrictions in Texas. Uh, Now that they got over the snowstorm and everything, you can go out willy nilly with no mask and act a fool. Uh, I would still say hunker down. Uh, There are lots of dangers uh, out and about. Uh, If you are going to go out, whatever it is, uh, be very alert uh, to your surroundings. Uh, If it looks like someone is being loud, hostile, exit. Uh, You do not know if that person is armed. uh, If they have a whole group with them armed and intent on harm. You didn't leave your residence prepared for mortal combat. Exit the area. We are very risk averse uh, for the 2020, 2021 until things improve drastically. Uh, All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. No name calling. So simple. Just something easy we can do to minimize conflict with other victims of racism. It's in the 10 stops. Dr. Welsing, she was mentioned, would strongly advocate no name calling simple things that we can do to work towards solving this problem. That's it. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs) It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.